And now let's go on and record the rock drill shake. listening to CITR F102 Cable 102 Vancouver British Columbia Canada and it's time right now for the Nardwar the Human Serviette Radio Show you just heard right there Mario Pagano from 1971 with Rock Drill Shake kind of an industrial song yes an industrial song you'll learn about that tune and you'll learn about that Term coming up in my interview with Jello Biafra, my three-part interview with Jello Biafra, where among other things we talk about the Rock Drill Shake by Mario Pagano. So coming up is my fourteenth interview ever with Jello Biafra on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. Who are you? I am Jello Biafra, and you're not, which I'm sure you're thankful for every single day. Jello, this is the 14th time I have interviewed you. My God. <laughs> 
I, that's that's you have the record by far i'm sure oh i just did morat for kerrang too and he's been doing me for years for various british publications but i actually haven't talked to you since 2013 so there's been seven years seven years for me to make it to number 14 boy it does fly by doesn't it time fries when you're overworked and right off the bat, Jello, I have a gift for you right here. I'm going to share it right now. I'm not sure if you already have this gift. Friend, oh, wow. Nice. So I, I, do you have this record? I'm going to give this to you. I have the record. I've never seen that picture sleeve. This is actually the 45. If we go Good. along a bit more, you can see it along. Could you tell me about your idol, your role model? Frank. Oh, he, he's one of many role models I've had over time, but that was a very pivotal part of my uh, growing up. I mean, it was about the only time I seriously, Walter Mitty Cinderella, wanted to be anything except somebody on stage in a kick-ass rock band. I mean, 1965, Beatlemania still going on, fall, second grade, my father blundered into a rock and roll station trying to get me to go to sleep. Leave it there, Dad, I like that, I like that. And that might be the biggest regret he's ever had in raising his child, because then there was no stopping me, and I wasn't gonna listen to Beethoven, although I'm not trying to slam Beethoven, or. Uh, you know, opera with my mom or anything. I was all about the harder stuff. Uh, Beatles, sure, because that was what people had heard of, but Rolling Stones, Paul Revere and the Raiders, whose influence on the American 60s garage sound has never quite properly been credited because they were on the radio all the time and they had two TV shows. Why do so many bands sound like them? Because they heard and saw them a lot. Anyway, then about the next year, third grade was when the Batman TV show came on. And of course, just like when I watched superhero cartoons a few years later, I immediately identified with the villains. They were so much more fun. And so then when people are writing their little what they want to be when they grow up uh, things for third grade, um, they, uh, <laughs> yeah, you got really small on the screen now. My God, now they're trying to sell me an Adobe Flash player. Go away. Anyway, I hope I can get you back on the big screen. We're real tiny now. We're, We're sharing the screen actually now of this Frank Gorshin record, a gift for you. You do not have this jello. You don't have this record. Well, you don't have the picture sleeve. Oh my God. They're trying to sell me an Adobe flash player in the middle of this shit. I can't get out of it. Okay. If I quit Safari, I'm going to lose you. All right, here we go. Okay. So basically they wanted everybody in third grade to do his usual what do I want to be when I grow up? And, you know, I want to be a policeman. I want to be a baseball player. I, and then the girls, I want to be a nurse. Me, I want to be the Riddler. I want to be the Penguin, the Jokers. Those are my role models. Now, all I need to find, in addition to the Burt Ward, who played Robin single that was produced by Frank Zappa, so it's stratospherically out of our range to actually get a hold of one, Burgess Meredith made a record as the Penguin, too, with a picture sleeve, and I've never even seen that one. This is for you, Jello. though. This is an actual gift for you. I'm going to mail this record to you. I'm going to mail it to you. Thank you, Nardwar. 
Jello, do you still have some body hair from 1978? Um, actually, I do. Yeah, because 1978 was uh, the fall 78. I had really gotten into punk rock, kind of knew what I wanted to do in Walter Mitty's Cinderella world. But I was going to University of California at Santa Cruz, which turned out to be kind of a hippie school in the wrong way and I got there to get away from Boulder where I grew up and found another Boulder kind of but I also still had really long hair which was left over from the time that that was what scared the shit out of people and I kind of knew it didn't anymore but I'd been to punk shows in England when I went through in 77 and didn't cut the hair off yet and uh, whatnot and didn't really want to except eventually I was like okay now it's time. I was cranking the pistols really loud with my dorm door open to annoy everyone else in the hall and whipped out a pair of just crude little scissors. I don't think they were child's lefty scissors, but one step up and cut off all my hippie hair. And so my hair was about a quarter of an inch long and, you know, kind of looked like a crude concentration camp haircut, which I've done from time to time ever since. But, um, so I basically put all the hippie hair in a bag, sealed it up, and nailed it to the outside of my dorm door, right alongside of the Son of Sam drawings they found on his apartment and other fun things I would put up to kind of stake out an identity there. I should have got you to dig out the hair instead of the records. Is the hair in a house somewhere? I might even know where it is, but I'm not going to go look for it now. I found it again a while back. I couldn't believe I still had it. Joe, I was curious. Did a Ramones remember you from Denver? You saw the Ramones in Denver. Did they remember you at all? Well, I saw them in March of 1977 when they scared the living daylights of most of the cocaine cowboy major label country rock mafia types since Denver and Boulder were major no, were ground zero testing grounds for who was going to be the next Eagles or the next Firefall, which made for one miserable youth, except for finding everything from Funhouse sealed for a dime to Music Machine for 50 cents and MC5 for a quarter and stuff like that. It did have its, its advantages. But that was such a life-changing event for so many people. They were so good, so powerful. And I kind of giggled at them before that. Short songs, beat on the brat with a baseball bat. Now I want to sniff some glue. And that's the only lyrics and stuff like that. So me and my prog rock and space rock head friends would smoke a bunch of weed, trip out on import records and stuff and kraut rock. And then I'd put that on. And we were all kind of amused to the point where one of them, after I saw that show, said, you mean you take the Ramones seriously now? I was like, oh, you bet I do. They were so good, so powerful, and so simple. It's like, God, and even Joey's stage moves are so simple. Even I could do that. Maybe I should do that. Maybe I will do that. Those gears were turning in the heads of all kinds of people at the show that night. So many bands and other things came from that one Ramones show. Dead Kennedys, Angst, the band on SST, because the two brothers who play guitar and bass were high school classmates of mine and stuff. And Joseph, the younger one, was already really into punk and collecting records and whatnot. And so, uh, you know, he was the one who, who was more aggressive than me. And then he comes this back down. I was just backstage talking to the Ramones. You can talk to a rock star? Really? 
And so then we all went back and hung out with Ramones. You've probably seen the picture of me and Joey and the third guy in the picture is Joseph Pope, who later was the bass player and kind of the leader of Angst. And also um, Don Fleming was there. He was stationed in the Air Force, Lowry Air Force Base at the time, went to punk shows. And he of course went back east and did Velvet Monkeys and Gumball and before that the Stroke Band, whose album I've still never found. And um, the Wax Tracks label grew out of that. Jim and Danny and all the people who worked there were there. And be, they were championing electronic disco then. They were championing, championing glam New York dolls and saw punk as an extension of that to the point where the British guy involved with the store, Mike Smythe, who was flying back and forth to London, bringing biker movie soundtracks to Ted Carroll at the Rock On record store. And of course, what also grew out of the Rock On record store was the Chiswick label that morphed into the Ace label and the Big Beat labels. And what a very important person, Ted Carroll. Anyway, um, so he was bringing back aside from incredibly rare and insanely expensive pretty things albums that never came out in America and downliner sect even and stuff like that he was bringing back punk records fresh out of the stores you know and and the like the sun and some of the other papers freaking out when the sex pistols all puked on themselves at a press conference and stuff like that and jim and nash and danny flesher were hanging up all over the wall at wax track this is what we like colorado and then when i heard what was probably neat 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 by the damned and that song was so good oh what's that uh just another english punk band oh shit I have to start collecting 45s now too, or I'm never going to be able to hear this music. And so then another Pandora's box was opened. The Ramones went to Wax Tracks the next day and declared it the best store they'd ever seen. Let's Did they remember way. you? Did the Ramones realize did what the Ramones remember me later? I don't remember if they did or not, because at one point, I got a handwritten letter from John Cummings signing at Johnny Ramone, just kind of talking about feelings of why, you know, we're not political, but blah, blah, blah. And that for some reason he wanted me to be clear on that because apparently they played California Uber Alice in the mix before they went on stage. But of course, Johnny would later reveal himself to be quite conservative and stuff. But, and I, and I wrote him back and I might have mentioned that then. So then a few years after that, when I finally saw the Ramones again, and by then we were about to do the Los Cusanos single and CD EP, which was CJ Ramones band. So me and Greg Workman of Alternative Tentacles, now Mr. Ipecac Records with Mike Patton, you know, we had free reign to the backstage and chatted with Johnny for a while. And of course, CJ and the others. And um, I can't remember if we talked about the Denver show or not. I mean, the, I think the Ramones knew that they were planting seeds everywhere they went when they went on that tour, even if they lost their shirts. They were planting all these seeds. Al Jorgensen claims he was at that show too, but the Wax Tracks crew and the rest of us didn't know him then, but he was living in Colorado then, so it is entirely possible. And a bunch of other local bands spun out of that, and then friend of mine uh, who helped run trade tape and records where I got all the cheap records and the 13th floor elevators out of the freebie box along with Les Baxter and Ema Sumac and other Simon Stokes, other life-changing things. Um, 
he had a radio show on the independent station Boulder then called KRNW. And so he talked to Ramones into an interview and then he talked to the people who ran the venue when he found out the Ramones had time before their next gig and talked to Ebbets Field, which was mainly all about country rock showcasing and Scientology jazz fusion and that kind of stuff. Um, he talked him into giving the Ramones their own show the next night. And so the Ramones, we got to see the Ramones again and they needed an opening band. So they got the first Colorado punk band that I hadn't seen yet called the Ravers from Boulder. And they opened the show and for the show, suddenly the Ravers needed roadies as they were called then. So me and Joseph Pope who later went into Angst and Sam Turner and John Trujillo, two other friends, we became the Ravers roadies. For the rest of the time, the Ravers were in Colorado before they took Sam with them and Rick, the manager, moved to New York and had kind of an identity crisis and personnel changes and changed their name to The Nails and had that big hit, 88 Lines, About 44 Women. Another yeah, band last time. that came out of that one Ramones show. So uh, I was, I felt 10 feet tall. All you people, my family and at school told me what a loser I was going to be. I would never amount to anything. I'm a roadie for the ravers now. Jello That's what that meant to me at the time. Jello Biafra, you mentioned going to England. What did you think I about, did. <laughs> what did you think about rest in peace, Genesis P. Orange, throbbing gristle? Because he has said punk was, too traditional punk was too traditional well from his lens it probably was from where he was coming from i mean throbbing gristle was one of many projects i think the only audio one maybe that came out of this group called cum transmissions and uh, i believe they might have done performance art and uh maybe fetishy stuff i don't know and, and other other kinds of things and then throbbing gristle was the one that uh you know they said they were they were introducing one of the search and destroy things whose best known public form is throbbing gristle so they were coming from a completely different place and were already well underway when punk hit doing their thing john belushi got you on saturday night live but you were vetoed and they got fear yeah, yeah. I mean, he came backstage and we talked for a while um, uh, after we played a show at Irving Plaza on Dead Kennedy's 1981 tour. And I felt I, I gave him the courtesy of warning him. I was kind of going after him on a song we didn't play, but was coming on the next album called Terminal Preppy. You know, Belushi's my hero. I lampoon and I ape him. My news of the world comes from Sports Illustrated. I mean, I've still never seen Animal House, but that was kind of based on both what I'd heard about Animal House and his Bluto character, as well as all the animal houses I delivered pizza to in Boulder for about a year and a half as well as the dorms and, you know, a lot of drunk University of Colorado students. It was a party school. It still is. Thus, things like uh, Terminal Preppy and even Holiday in Cambodia were from those days and inspired by that. And Belushi is actually kind of flattered. He said, yeah, no, go ahead, do it. The sad part is later, somehow word got to me because I was hanging out in New York after the tour. Yeah, we're shooting this movie called Neighbors. Come hang out on the set and stuff. And I was so busy going to record stores and other things that I never got around to it. 
who knows, I might have even talked myself into a character role. You never know. He did put a song of ours in that movie. And we actually got paid, unlike the class movie and several more. But um, then, yeah, then 19, a little bit later, he wanted to get us onto Saturday Night Live. And they were having none of it because of our name. They did not want us on at all. So at the last minute, we were swapped out for fear instead, who I think were on tour in the East Coast at that point. And, you know, as, as you probably know, if you ever saw that, the uh, DC muscle heads, as they were kind of known at the time, who were in the early stages of minor threat and SOA, government issue, the DC Youth Brigade, the rest, they knew already from going to a Black Flag show in New York in force that they scared the living shit out of the New York audience, who was not prepared for them at all. So they came up for us too, which made me really happy. You know, a whiff of the West Coast and the East Coast. And one of them was even shaving people's heads by the side of the stage. But they also came up for the Saturday Night Live show. And I suspect it was Mr. Belushi who got them passes and made sure they actually not only got in for the shoot, but had run of the place because weren't they knocking over potted plants and stuff while fear played? Yes, and smashing Halloween pumpkins. Well, that just goes to show how much clout John Belushi had on that show by then that they weren't immediately grabbed and thrown out and they did a take two. Jello Biafra, you were the first guy put on trial for releasing an obscene LP. And I was curious about the history of obscene LPs. And I wanted to share this to you right now. Oh, do I have to? Jello, what fresh can you say? Oh, about there this? it is. There it is. Okay. How does this, <laughs> what is the connection between Jello Biafra and Cocksucker's Ball? And how does it all relate? How come they didn't go to trial? Is that the same Clovers who did Love Potion number nine? It wouldn't I... surprise me if it was. Well, those kind of records were sold kind of under the table, under the counter, brown paper bags. There's a whole series of those. Um, and that one I'm assuming is Rhythm and Blues, but um, especially if it's that Clovers. But there were country ones, not really rock and rolly ones, except maybe tapping that thing could be argued for that a lot of them came out under different artist credits to the stickball song and um that kind of stuff has a very long rich history especially in black music which was years earlier dismissed as race music and because it was race music that was not allowed on Caucasian radio stations, even though you wouldn't have to see the black people because it was only the radio, they were still that segregationist and stuff and freaked out that if white people listened to the, you know, smoke too much marijuana, they'd get, you know, influenced by the jungle rhythms of the Negro and fall under the occult influence of jazz. You know, the reefer madness hype that got cannabis banned all these years. You know, the other really horrible thing that Franklin Roosevelt did besides put all the Japanese American citizens in camps and everything. That's the other really unforgivable one was that was when cannabis was banned. But anyway, so there's, a, there's been a long history. I might even have one, but I have to reach back and find it. Um, there's compilations of this stuff. They're called, and there's both the most 
blatant, uh, you know, right up front pro-drug songs, especially marijuana, and the most, you know, the most libidinous, explicit sex songs were almost all, as far as I know, by black artists because they weren't paying that much attention to the race music stores. For one thing, it might meant being white, you'd have to go into a black neighborhood and into an African-American themed record store and start looking for them. And they might be able to like quick throw you out before physically before you found it. I'm just speculating here. But uh, there's whole compilations of the really filthy language uh, black records and stuff, as well as um, there's one called Risky Blues that got around a little more. I think it was put out late 60s, early 70s. And King put it out because they had put out so much of that stuff back in the day. And it was all innuendo. You know, Annie had a baby and then there was sequels of that. You know, the Hank Ballard, the Midnighters song was on there. Oysters, those good old mountain oysters. And you can, you know what those were in real life. And all kinds of innuendo like that, which made it all the funnier when one of the really square helmet-headed old biddies who was sitting there with Tipper Gore at the Hearing Her Husband stage on evil, wicked music, leading people to worship Satan, commit crimes and get people pregnant and this, that, and the other. Um, that other woman said to a reporter, well, why do they have to do this? I mean, there was a time when rock and roll wasn't that bad. You could just dance to it like a wop, bop, a loop, bop, a lop, bam, boom. She had no idea what Little Richard really was at all, because it was all innu innuendo. From 1954, by the Clovers, also covered by Frank Zappa. Oh, was that uh, not not as Zappa? That was before the Mothers, right? He did that live on one of his tours. He actually cool. covered because he loved that. And we're speaking, in case you're wondering, to Jello Biafra, and I have another gift for you, Jello. Oh, right wow. here. This God, is putting me in debt here. The top five percent. This record. I'm not sure if you have this. The oh, incredible is this a get rich quick record or something? The incredible story, which tells you why only 5% of the men in the richest land on earth achieve financial independence. The top oh, so is it an entire, entire recitation of our tax code? Especially <laughs> the Boom. new one where they cut you know, rich people's taxes from about 30% to 11%. And of course, they're then blaming the deficits. I'm like, oh, we got to cut more, we got to cut more money for schools. We got to cut more money for this and that. We got to keep those little kids in cages because we can't afford to put them anywhere else. Especially ironic with that, Cruz. They're the same people who are all about right to life. We're pro-life, but they're so anti-life. They hate kids. They're relentless in cutting education budgets and things like that. Oh, this is Earl Nightingale. And that's a seven inch then. Okay. Earl Nightingale. Yeah, he was one of those, you know, get rich quick things. It was kind of like an earlier version of Trump University, but probably less fraudulent, or at least at less blatantly fraudulent. I mean, that guy lasted at least into the 70s because you used to see ads on TV from him trying to buy my book or buy my whatever. You too can live like I do. And there he is in his checkered suit and gassed back hair and stuff. He was a good laugh. I've never seen a record by him before, but I'm not surprised he'd have one of those. Well, this I mean, the, is one, a the, the other get rich quick one. I have two by this guy. Now you can better your best by Glenn W. Turner. 
I was very excited to find him in the trade of tape free bots, no matter what he was doing, because, and then his, his testimony was, even a man like me with a hair lift can get rich and blah, 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 blah. The reason it was interesting is because he was already a nationally infamous con man, possibly with warrants out for him already. I don't know. He was using everybody's pyramid scam money to construct his own personal version of San Simeon in Florida. And they took him away when he was about halfway through with it and stuff. So I don't know what happened to the Glenn W. Turner mansion or whatever. And that record ironically was produced by Bobby Lee Trammell, who was a rockabilly legend a decade earlier. So there we have the top 5%. That is a gift for you. I will mail this record to you. I will mail it to you because you don't have it. What, yeah, I will wait, mail wait. It to you. What, happened, what about Frank Gorshin? No, I will mail that as well. That's another okay. gift for you. And we're speaking right now to Jello Biafra live from where are we live? Where are you live from? San Francisco, California. San Francisco, California. And we're also joined right now with my friend Roger. Roger, this is Jello Biafra. Hi, Roger. Why are you bombing my show? <laughs> it's by Nardbar's assist uh, insistence that I uh, appear here. Uh, uh, Roger has been on the Nardwar show like 50 times, haven't you? You've been on my show like 50 Boy, times. Have my sympathies, dude. <laughs> That's a I, white background, though. Does that mean you're in a mental hospital because of Nardwar? Maybe. Uh, it's, or is it a holding cell? I mean, we're all in our own uh, quarantines. I mean, if you're in a holding cell, you didn't do a very good job of killing that dude off. <laughs> Ba-boom. And actually, you asked why Roger is here. And actually, I'll share the screen right now. Here is the reason that Roger is here. There is Roger. And he has a uh, Holiday Inn Cambodia shirt. What's going yeah. on here, Roger? How old were you? And what's your connection to Jello Biafra? Jello Biafra, this is your rock life. It is. This is your life. Uh, that's 1984, I believe. I'm 14. I'm looking awfully happy considering the subject matter of the t-shirt. And uh, I loved uh, the Dead Kennedys. I was loving them back then and I still love them. Well, what about my newer stuff? I was at the Guantanamo School of Medicine. I was a photographer actually at Ooh. your uh, show here in Vancouver. If I was you got the... any good shots, I'd love to see them. Including will... if you got any of the subhumans, Canada, because that's Brian Goble and you know, he was a good friend, a very dear friend, and we don't have him now. Well, we will get to that. Again, we're speaking to Roger and Jello Biafra on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Show. So we continue on here, and we have this flyer from Roger's collection. Right, Roger? Uh, yeah. This was oh, it was the New York Theater with a crucifix, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 I, I thought that was a pretty good show. I thought the Crucifix did really well too, and you know Doc was such had such a short fuse, loose cannon kind of thing. We had no idea if the Vancouver audience that likes to boo people and throw beer cans was going to go after him, and he'd flip, or the opposite. And they played great, and they won everybody over from the get go. And if we continue on here, here's a picture from the Scorter magazine taken by William Jans with 
The Cure on the cover, also a Dead Kennedys review, and the quote is, the styles and lyrical content of the two lead singers could not have been more different. And as we go into Discorder magazine, we see this picture right here, and we see some Jello Biafra live at the New York Theater on the gig you described. There you go. That was when you could put a mic cord in your mouth when you had no other place to put the mic and not get sick as a dog afterwards. And that picture was taken by Dave Jacklin, and you also, Roger, were at the show, right? Yeah, this this was this was actually I thought this was cool as well because uh, the Dead Kennedys played for two nights, so it was kind of cool. Like, so there there was quite a few bands because well, I can't um, remember if Crucifix was on both nights or just one. They played on one, but Death Sentence played right, on the I second night, them. which is one of my favorite bands. And we go along some more. Another Dave Jacklin picture. You at the New York Theater. What do you remember about the gig, Roger? What do you remember about this gig? Like something about Joey Shithead? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, as far as I remember, uh, Joey from DOA was a roadie that night. And every time he went out on stage to help, you know, plug in chords and that kind of thing, the audience would start chanting his name. And he looked really kind of sheepish about it, like, you know. You're not here to see me kind of thing. I'm just here. I don't out. remember Joe ever doing that with us. It's theoretically possible. He may have but, been helping uh, one of the opening bands. Oh, yeah, yeah. It would make sense that DOA and Death Sentence might have uh, shared some time together. And I don't remember that. I, don't, I didn't see that band Industrial Waste I saw on the flyer. And then there was another one, too. And I don't know those bands at all. There was an all-girl band called the Bags of Dirt. They huh. also appeared on there. Uh-huh. And if we continue some more down here, we're again with Jello Biafra and Roger. We have a picture of a recently departed Chai Pig, also oh. taken by Dave Jacklin. Nice, nice. His palm tree hair in full bloom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, we were losing people every year now, as we know, and the more ancient we become, the more we're losing people. And then at times, oh my God, it always comes in threes and these are really close. Am I the third? No, not ready to go yet. I was when I was 20, but not now. So uh, yeah, I mean, uh, that was probably by the time that the SNFU had had more of a name and, you know, play. I, I don't know if they'd even played in Vancouver when we first uh, encountered them in Edmonton and then played two more uh, shows in Saskatoon and Regina with them. And the album wasn't out or anything yet. We just heard rumors about them. And uh, I was blown away immediately. And, uh, and then the next two nights, we really had to work our asses off, especially me, because there was another really good, really unusual and really theatrical performer who let it flow to the point where he wasn't doing the same thing each night either. You know, it was all coming from wherever it came from. It's almost a lost art now. You know, both because people just don't want to work that hard and or some of the, you know, reverse liberal guilt trip stuff that plagued Gilman Street for, oh, were you some kind of rock star if you were too extroverted? 
and stuff. Whereas in the days of uh, Mabuhay Gardens, late 70s, where, you know, DOA came, we met there and stuff, and everybody, Avengers, Dills, and Crime and the Nuns before them played, the pressure was different. People were supposed to be the same. Everybody had to be different or nobody cared, in no small part, because most of the audience was the people in the other bands. But... Um, Perhaps that sounds familiar from Smiling Buddha and other places. But then um, it was also, the, the thing then was you better not act like some cock rock, jackass, rock star type off stage. But when you're on stage, you better show us something. You know, we want to see performing. And you, Roger, you loved Chai Pig too. As an nephew, I've said that before. I, when I was in grade eight in high school, I had, as in a few t-shirt and that in order for me to keep it, I had to tell my mom it meant sausages never fry unevenly. And uh, ever since, you know, ever since I was a kid. Yeah, as in a few. Um, and Chai Pig, what a great frontman, So charismatic and uh, such amazing songs. It's a real shame. And we continue on with Jello Biafra and Roger. What do we have right here, Roger? This is, yeah, this is Jello on stage with uh, the subhumans at that show with the Guantanamo School of Medicine that I was uh, lucky enough to be in the uh, photo pit to take pictures at. God, it looks and, like I'm praying. Yeah. <laughs> we were probably doing something else. Ah, oh, there we are. Ah, oh, there's, there's Mike Graham, for once known as Mike Normal, looking kind of normal, and Brian Goble, looking kind of abnormal like he often did when he was on stage especially in rude norton and john card on the far right that is john card cool yeah this, was, a, this was an intense show because uh i never i'd actually never been in the uh, photo area that little area between the stage and the audience and the audience was huge that night and and all ages show so very young and and old punks it was cool. It was really, I, I actually heard that you were in the audience, Joe, watching this. Well, that's generally what I like to do. You know, and I, I like to see other bands live and I like to be close to the stage. So you see the sweat dripping off the guitar strings. It gets harder when Jello selfie, Jello selfie. But sometimes people are actually cool enough to wait until there's actually time. Although sometimes, I mean, one in Australia, I was watching a band there and a guy collared me in kind of a chokehold, like, and I thought he was going to punch me with his other hand, so I almost punched him. But then a phone came up instead. And that mm -hmm. kind of stuff isn't very cool. And it's kind of died down, not died down, but gotten a little more humane. Uh, but um, I still had to write the song No More Selfies, which is on the new album. There's a new Guantanamo School of Medicine album called uh, Tea Party Revenge Porn. And we can know it's right. not going to not going to instantly become dated if we can finally really truly get rid of Trump, and I don't think we have, because the Tea Party revenge porn song and the song called Satan's Comb Over was written before Trump even stole the 2016 election. I mean, Satan's Comb Over is a worldwide phenomenon. So captured by Roger Allen at the rickshaw in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Roger has been on my show, like I mentioned, over 50 times. He has also played the darts on my radio show. The darts. The That's amazing true. darts. Well, when are you going to have them on? I love them. And their background, the love me nots, the love me nots, the darts. 
Yeah, I, I first got into them when I saw the Love Me Nots, not knowing who they were, at a little bar way out in the valley in Reseda, California, where they brought me in to be one of the DJs. And there were other DJs, too. And, oh, yeah, we got one last band, uh, Love Me Nots, and I'm packing. Oh, no, they wanted to DJ after me to do it after the Love Me Nots. And so, okay, here comes, let's check out this band. Whoa, this is a really good band. And that singer's not only got a great voice, they got great songs. She's quite the wiggler and wriggler all over her keyboard without missing a note. Amazing. Any other questions at all for Jello Biafra, Roger? Uh, not, I mean, not, I, my only real question would just be about um, playing with uh, the band The Cramps, because every time I'm with Nardwar on his show, I mention this concert I went and saw of the Cramps at UBC, which is where we recorded all the radio programs. And I know the Dead Kennedys played with the Cramps, and I know Jello, or not Jello, I know Jello is a huge record collector, but so is Lux and Carrier. So anything about the, the Cramps that stands out in your memory? We never got to meet properly and talk about any of that. I mean, I met him in a high and by maybe before, no, Dead Kennedys existed by then when they played Mabuhe and he was very polite, but you know, just another guy out of the crowd. And then we were both on the same, Billy on the same night when they were shooting that now evaporated movie that never even came out on DVD called Erg, A Music War. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was mainly to showcase the police because it was Miles Copeland, you know, what a younger brother band and all the stuff that he had on his IRS label. I don't think they even had R.E.M. yet. They're, they might be in the movie, but they weren't. It was a two-nighter thing at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium. And uh, we must have been on the first night. Yeah, there was Chelsea. Then I think we were next. And then that was probably X was after us, unless they were on the net. No, they weren't on the next side. And unless I'm spacing on somebody, it was the cramps after that. And weirdly, I thought they just did not play well at all that night. It was really just kind of fuming about it. And Miles Copeland overheard me saying that the next day and looked up, are you done now? And then you see them on, 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 on the screen in Erg and they look great. You know, it is the cramps in your face, the way they would want themselves presented and stuff all the way. Well, thank you so much. Roger for Zoom bombing Jello Biafra and providing those picks. Keep on rocking <laughs> in the free world and do do loot do. Do do. In the meantime, enjoy uh, Tea Party Revenge Porn. And there's about five videos, actually. I've never had official JB video clips before, but then uh, Vancouver's own Annie Kidd started making these collage videos of news footage of a series of electronic songs she was making at home because she was all cooped up, too. We created Putin. We, she did one of those, too. We created Putin. And you're still listening to Jello Biafra. Go ahead, Jello. Keep going. Yes. The, uh, the worst part of the whole Putin story, of course, is he obviously has Dirty Donnie Trump amok by the short hairs. And Trump is afraid of nothing, least of all humanity or being a decent guy or common sense. But he bashes everybody else in the world, including his own employees. He never crosses Putin. Why is he so scared of Putin? People say, oh, it's the sex with the P tape that he's on that Putin has, or it's this, or he's afraid of that. No. But you got to remember, 
about Trump is deep down, his main thing is he's a con man. He was never a success in business. And when he ran out of his daddy's money after pissing that away on one business adventure after another, that failed because he works the bankruptcies laws constantly, partly so he doesn't ever have to pay the people who build Trump Tower or anything like that. He just rips everybody off and was borrowing money from this bank in New York and that one and ripping all of them off through bankruptcy scams. And finally, they kind of got to talking around 2000 or so, and no American bank would lend Donald Trump any more money for anything. Trump organization, forget it. You're toxic, you rip everybody off and you know it. So then he goes and gets money from Deutsche Bank, that German bank who's also been caught, you know, you know, laundering money for drug cartels and Al Qaeda and maybe ISIS and other things. I think he borrowed $300 million or more from them. Has he paid that back yet? No, just gonna do another bankruptcy scheme or trade it for letting them off for all the money they owe the American government for helping crash the economy in 2008. We're gonna see that right when he pardons his own family and shit. But I thought, well, then what happens to him after that? Well, who provides us the answer but Eric Trump? In 2009, here they are opening all these fancy new, or by his standards, fancy, cheesy golf resorts all over the place. Yet more Trump stuff. And a golfing magazine is interviewing Eric Trump, who's supposedly in charge of the project. And well, the economy just crashed in 2008. It's 2009. Banks won't lend to anybody. How are you getting the money for this? And he smiles that toothy, creepy grin of his and says, well, we don't use, note the new word use, American banks. We don't need them. We use Russian banks. So in all likelihood, right about now, there's a lot of loans that are due. But Trump had no intention of paying them. He was just going to rip them off too and move on to another victim. The trouble is, you borrow money from Russian banks who have enough money to lend, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions, to Trump. And then they're going to want their money back. And he, even if he doesn't intend to pay it, well, you got to do everything we say because. Otherwise, we can repossess Trump Tower and call it Putin Tower. We'll take Mar-a-Lago, so you have to stare from the window outside as my best hookers in the world run wild inside, and you can't have any, Mr. Wannabe Jeffrey Epstein. You don't get even to touch them at all, let alone grab them by the pussy. And one thing that fucks with bad Vlad, my agents can poison you even in your own bedroom, and poison Ivanka too. <laughs> Trump lives in terror of that every single day, which then links up to that tell-all book, the first of the two that Lewis Wolf wrote, mentioning that Trump was hyper paranoid of having his food poisoned. And that's why he liked to have his limo stop at McDonald's on the spur of the moment. They don't know who's buying the food. They can't poison it, blah, blah, blah. Who does he think is poisoning his food? Not just all the people he ripped off putting up his buildings. He knew enough not to cross the mob too often when he put up Atlantic City. No, he's scared. If he doesn't keep gorging McDonald's, 
his cheeseburgers are gonna get cheeseburgers gonna get poisoned by you know who and he'll literally keel over and do us a favor and die collapsing in a raked leaves size pile of cheeseburger wrappers in the bedroom on the bed that Melania won't share with him. And check out all that on your new album and with a cover. We have the cover of your new album right now. Awesome. Yeah, it's another cover by Winston Smith. Very strong image. I was waiting for the perfect record to put that with and it was never quite the right one it's been one of my favorites since uh he may have made that even before he went on that spree that resulted in the cover to the album made with doa last scream of the missing neighbors the sky is falling and i want my mommy with no means no is another one from that period and the um high priest of harmful matters spoken word album is another one all from that one period of amazing stuff I think it was earlier when Reagan was still president that he made that one that I thought was so cool, but Winston kind of forgot about it because there's another brain and snakes thing that he thinks is much better that's also hopefully going to be the next Guantanamo release album cover when we get to that, kind of tie it in with this one. But I uh, thought, my God, that he still hasn't let anybody use that. Winston, it's time. I need that snake eating the brain image. And he was like, oh my God, I totally forgot about that one. I don't even know where the original is. Three books of his art are now out. And to my utter astonishment, I thought, well, there's a good, there's a good shot of in this high risk and not in that one. No, oh my God, it's not in any of his books. No wonder nobody took that cover before I got my sticky little paws on it. So finally, it's out for everybody to see. I love it. And I think it captures where we're at right now perfectly. I mean, and it's not going to be black and white on the final album cover that's still, you know, getting made and everything. It's going to be black and silver. The idea of a revolver, I just distributor always wants some kind of sticker on the front saying, hooray for this album, buy it or review from somebody or something like that. And with Itchio, we even had one of those little phones jumbled squares. So you could put your phone on it and sample the band. But anyway, um, this one, a simple comic book thing with a point, look here, this is your brain on Trump. And there is the person who picks up the album cover staring into the silver brain in the rattlesnake's mouth, and there's their own face. And that was part one of my interview with... Me. Jello Biafra. Stay tuned for part... Two. With Jello... Biafra! That's right. Excuse me, this is Jazz Smash from Madness, telling you CITR, the place of music that goes far, the sound that abounds, the sounds that are around. Listen to CITR and catch the nutty sound of madness. Who are you?
I am Jello Biafra, and I still won't go away. That same Jello Biafra you've had on what fourteen other times, and each time somebody sneaks me back on your show, like the producer of Oprah, who had no idea it was me when she booked me in a second time with Tipper Gore, and I caught Tipper lying on the air and humiliated both her and Oprah in the process. Yes, it's Dead Kennedy's Jello Biafra. It's one time mayoral candidate, spoken word saboteur, and lard and Biafra albums with DOA, No Means No, Mojo Nixon, Tumor Circus, and current band, the Guantanamo School of Medicine, who even has this new album out, Tea Party Revenge Porn. Look at it for it in your favorite store in a while, because the hard copies still aren't done. But luckily, in this case, the digital age was my friend, and I could still get this album out before our so-called election last November 3rd. And uh, some people said, oh, yeah, but that whole album's about Trump. It's already old. No, it's not. It's the whole phenomenon. Trump is only the phrase for Satan's comb over. That's worldwide. Tea Party revenge porn. The Tea Party people aren't going away. They're just wearing MAGA hats now, and they're arming themselves and getting more stupid, more intolerant, more crazy, and more violent. So this is going to go on for a long time to come. It's not as though global warming or climate collapse, as I call it, has suddenly ended either. That's what the last big gulp song is about. Or the voyeurs who slow traffic down just can't, you know, and you see a lot of this on the internet too. Ooh, ooh, maybe there's a car crash. I'll slow down and stuff. Let's go stare at bloody dead people. That's another song on there. Taliban USA, that's actually, I'd never gone after the anti-abortion zealots in this country before, whose real purpose, of course, they don't give a damn about the unborn once they're born. They hate kids. They just want to beat up on them and force them to go to religious school and not give them any money to eat or anything, or the mother can stay home with a kid. They're actually anti-life, anti-quality life. But now that we have a 6-3 majority of not just far right-wing pro-corporate extremists, but religious fanatics on the Supreme Court. Taliban USA, I mean, sometimes I wonder whether I should quit writing this stuff because it keeps coming true. And you are back on the Nardwar to Human Serviette show for part two, part two, Jello. Yeah, I mean, my mind is starting to go. We're all getting old. I'd forgotten that. And I have a gift for you right now. This is for Please. Jello Biafra for returning to the Nardwar to Human Serviette show. The record. <laughs> oh, my God. I've never seen that one before either. And what's the record called? How to Live with Yourself or What to Do Until the Psychiatrist Comes. I love this illustration. Very kitschy period piece, but my God by Dr. Murray Banks. I have not heard of Dr. Murray Banks. I mean, a lot of these records like this from late 50s, early to mid 60s, a lot of them were how you could improve yourself through hypnosis. And I have a bunch of them, especially this guy Ravine, and I've never had the nerve to play one. What happens if I fall asleep during it and get hypnotized against my will and come out a more normal, better person? You'd never Ravine. have me on again. I wouldn't be interesting anymore. 
but Ravine, a Canadian. Unfortunately, he has passed away, but there is the son of Ravine continuing on. Cello, I was curious. I also have this record right here. Do you know anything about this record? Okay, I have one of those records. It's something to do with construction, obviously. Maybe even noise reducers, maybe something else. It's one of those corporate records that might have been meant as a, a giveaway either to people who work with them. I mean, sometimes in the commercial end, you'd get things like the Frito Twist. Or, oh, yeah, the Rock Drill Shake. There you go. They're a drill company. How could I forget? Mario Pagato gives us seven instruments and one rock drill, and they aren't even calling themselves Throbbing Gristle or the Haters. Wow. I don't remember it being terribly rocking, to be honest. I do have that record. I have to play it again. Uh, I hope I filed it under Atlas Copco or we're out of luck here. But uh, yeah, I only found out fairly relatively recently, sadly, after that uh, research publications book called Incredibly Strange Music came out. And I'm in volume two talking about all kinds of weird and unusual and incredibly strange records and genres. And little did I know at the time or anybody working on the book, V Vale or the rest, that there's a whole other incredibly demented genre of records that I have a few of them now. I call them corporate sales convention records. They were basically what they are is recordings where a corporation, one of those we love so much, would hire a Broadway composer, hire a musical troupe to compose and then perform an entire full length musical about how great the corporation is for like sales executives when they're away from their wives at a convention on how to sell more stuff for the company. And there's a lot of stuff on there. One album by somebody is called Everything's Coming Up Profits. Well, and that's what I was going to ask you about, Jello. Yeah, is this yeah. one of those records? This isn't really a corporate sales convention record, is it? It's close. There's a gray area. And there's purists in this regard, too. And um, I think it fits, personally but it might have been more of like an advertising one. I mean, the best giveaway one like that I've ever heard, and maybe it was at shoe stores or a department store, was for Adler socks. Have you ever heard that one? No. It's called Do the Adler Sock. And the people who did it are on pebbles and stuff. It's the Denims, that 60s garage band, only it's more of a stomping, twisty kind of thing. Might be a little earlier than the one that's on pebbles. I mean, they're... They, they made a bunch of cool records, but the Adler Sock one is by far the best one they ever did. In addition to being all about, come on, everybody, we're doing the sock and stuff. It's a really good, like highly DJable, get the dance floor going kind of a song. I mean, there's even ones like there's a, a, a couple of them that Paul Revere and the Raiders did for I think Chevy cars. I mean, there's SS396 is one of theirs split on the other side with the circle, you know, the CYR KLE band doing Corvair baby and stuff. So that was probably, I would guess it was given away at car dealers or something to get kids who couldn't even know how to drive yet to come pick those records up. So then when they turn 16, they want their rich parents to buy them an SS396 or a Corvair so they could go crash and stuff. I don't know. I mean, I mean, the, the only person I can think of who definitely 
is a 100% guaranteed never to, a, to do a cover of Corvair Baby, although no one ever has, the last person I would pitch it to would be Ralph Nader. Jello, could you show some of the records of the corporate sales variety? Because I showed you one and I had kind of, you said, purists don't really like that type of yeah. record. Do you have some records you can show us? Well, there, I'm going to show you something else first along these regards because turns out um, they're not called corporate and sales convention records. It's called, get ready for this one, industrial music. Industrial musicals or just industrials for short. These musicals are still staged. My girlfriend knows good friend of hers who lives in Hawaii and she makes her living performing in these things. And so a um, mainly like a psych and weird people co record collector I knew really well who I did a sidebar interview with for uh, the incredibly strange music book named Paul Major. Um, he was kind of clooming, you know, I know this guy whose specialty is these records. I think you two weird people ought to meet. Oh my God, look at that product placement. I am so grateful. We're even making cups again too. You can actually buy those. They'll reach you even quicker than the LP or the CD version of Tea Party Revenge Porn will and stuff. Yeah, how can you not want to drink from that every day? I mean, we, we're not making goblets because uh, the upper crust didn't want to do a record with us. So we won't make those. But um, anyway, so he said, well, I want to meet this guy, Steve Young, who is kind of an expert on this. I kind of knew there was more out there from a bootleg CD called Product Music. That was my other name for it at the time that had the Frito twist and some others on it, as well as a song from an American Standard Toilet Company convention, My Bathroom, My Bathroom. Woman's voice is a special kind of place where I can really be me and dream and cream, cream, cream. And of course, I think it was supposed to mean like cold cream and makeup cream. But of course, to me, it was like I could lock myself in the bathroom and jerk off because I'm sick of my husband. And besides, he's off at the damn convention trying to sell more toilets. What am I supposed to do? You know, that, that, that one just really hooked me. So then I meet this guy, Steve Young, and in order to meet him, I had to go to CBS and go to the Letterman complex because Steve Young was one of the main gag writers for David Letterman all those years. When Dave would hold up some really weird thing called Dave's Record Collection. Had that you was seen stuff, that before? Had you seen that before on TV? I'd heard about it. Um, and that was Steve Young procuring the records. And as he told me, he was running out of weird stuff until he blundered into the industrial musicals. And then he was so hooked, he became obsessed with them, like the way you are with Canadiana and 60s garage music and whatnot, or I am with all kinds of things. So he set out to acquire every single one of those records ever made. In some cases, price be damned, and then put together even a book about the whole thing, coffee table book called Everything's Coming Up Profits, which he did with another co-writer collector named uh, Sport Murphy. I don't know if you can see that, but here's a set from one of them in the bottom. Here's the dancers below a bunch of dollar signs. That's how hardcore they were in these things. But basically what, what he did was he gave me some of these records and 
because I had one or two and I kind of realized, oh my God, I've got two or three of these. And the one for Arrow shirts has great garage rock on it and stuff. I just didn't realize it was an Arrow shirt convention record when I found it in a thrift store in Boulder for years earlier. What the hell is this? You know, this is why even if you can point fingers at Jello Biafra and the others for wrecking the collector market because of the incredibly strange music books, now we can't find anything anymore. Well, that means you're not really looking, are you? I still find things. I'm all about magic accidents and taking chances. And some 45 whose title or the band name seems interesting, I put it on. It doesn't sound anything like I thought it was going to be, but it's really cool. And I'm so into it, my brain starts spinning around and some other melodies start coming into my head. And I, then I lift off the tone arm and start singing the new melody into my handy Walkman and start making chorus bridge or whatever. So see if if I've got a live one or not. And sometimes those turn into songs you know well from Dead Kennedys all the way up till now. Magic accidents are really, really important. Sometimes I get really cool riffs in my head just imagining what I think a record I've read about that I'll never be able to get because it's rare or something might sound like you know, either from past, present, or future, whatever. And even then sometimes the song is good enough, I use it. Or I'll remember a song I heard on the radio as an 11 year old and never heard again. And then I realized when I finally hear the record that I remembered it wrong. And my riff is better than the one that was on the radio. Okay, got another song and stuff. There's all kinds of ways to find songs besides hunting for the stuff on a guitar or a keyboard, especially when you can't play them very well. And you can draw from a wider set of influences, thus, my songs sound a lot more different from each other than some other punk associated people. At least I think they do. Widen the base of the pyramid with everything I do, including the Mojo Nixon and New Orleans Raunch and Soul All-Stars records and the rest all the way down to, I think, you know, that might be the first closest pure garage rock song, Last Big Gulp. So you actually got some of these records from Steve? Oh, yeah, including even the holy grail for me. The bathrooms are coming. My bathroom, my bathroom. And because it was late 60s, there's a, uh, I got to get my old man glasses out for this. Um, you know, there, there are people who made their living doing these too, including future people who moved on like, uh, David Hartman, Valerie Harper, Loretta Swit was in these. Um, Tony Randall was in one as Tony Randall later. I think that was for Pizza Hut. Yeah, and Martin it's, revolu it's revolution. Yeah, there's a whole, you know, it's the toilet revolution. Look at the graphics and everything. Revolutionary plumbing. Look at this tub. The ultra bath is another song. Behind every man is a woman is another song. After all, most of the women were at home and it was male salespeople. And uh, yeah, so uh, anyway, I actually got that from him as well as a double album from General Electric called uh, Go Fly a Kite about the story of electricity, including multiple attacks on environmentalists in here. As Steve put it to me, his favorite ones were the ones that were not meant to be heard by anyone outside the company. You know, I think we have the devil here. We have some other stuff. And somewhere, I don't think I'm going to find her specifically, Valerie Harper is in this one. 
somewhere. Yeah, Where did he not... get the record? Did he have several copies to give you one? Like, why well, did he yeah, release I mean, he, his he copies? Obsessively, anything that popped up on eBay, he would grab it. And he finally realized that either he or Sport Murphy did the book with him, realized that for eBay, they kept having one counter bidder that they were fighting with all the, over with all these records. So then they met each other and the, the rest is history. The Some used record stores know enough to take these in if somebody brings one in. Most of them don't. Occasionally you'll find one in a thrift store, but for the most part it's garage sales or eBay or an occasional, but if the record store is hip, this is gonna be a lot of money for the damn thing too. And uh, yeah, bold new breed it says. This is the Arrow shirt one. I was talking about. So they're really into like sounds of the 60s. You want to get our psychedelic cool shirts and that kind of thing. And uh, speaking of not being heard outside the company, boring artwork. This is a later one from, uh, oh, it's even got like a ventriloquist with a tiger. That's the Exxon Tiger, which they retired when they weren't Enco or Esso anymore. But this, you get things like uh, the... <laughs> the Exxon dealer's wife. The Exxon dealer's wife who washes his uniforms, the gas station, she washes all his uniforms, keeps all the books, cleans up the gas station, cooks all his food. The Exxon dealer's wife, that's what the little woman is supposed to be. That was rather demented. And then you get... Why did Jello, did they stop making these records? Why did they stop making them? Because they just figured online, computer, I don't know. I don't know if there's CDs either. I mean, there's rumored to there's rumored to be an an Enron one, but nobody's ever found it. I mean, it the only the only people who possessed them were people who either got them at the convention if it was in a they did it in a recording studio ahead of time, or they got the live recording of the one time only performance of the show in the mail. This one live in San Francisco, the Coca Cola Company presents uh there they are all this oh yeah here we are i gotta hold this one back look at that thing and stuff there they are for their captive audience who has to pretend they like it or the boss is not going to be very pleased with them and there's one song on here called the big bottling plant in the sky the big bottling plant in the sky where there's no epa and there's no ohsa and everyone has to drink coke all day and more this was the mentality of these things and stuff. And then a few years later in San Francisco, 1986, the Pepsi convention, solid gold and everything. And the opening song, which is about a 15 minute semi-classical prog music epic is them gloating over the failure of new Coke. Where did the money go that was used to go into these productions? What happened to all the money? that went into the productions well it was it was you know maybe promotional advertising expenses keep the executives happy motivate them to sell more and then they break off and do their little seminars this was a little more blatant also from general electric songs to sell by and there it is in the book because uh Basically, I don't have my copy of it anymore. Unfortunately for me, you know, deal with Steve was, you know, if I found something he really wanted that he didn't have, 
then <laughs> I had to fork it over to him. So then he calls me up label. There was talk about doing compilations of these on alternative tentacles, but getting the rights was just ridiculous. And Rhino didn't even want to deal with it or anything because you'd have to go to Coca-Cola. You'd have to go to General Electric who wouldn't want the public to know they were ever doing this stuff, especially when people were laughing at the whole concept of them later and everything. Some of these were big budget productions. Like one year in the 50s, I think Fiddler on the Roof took $450,000 to bring to Broadway. Same year, General Motors did their convention musical for $1.5 million. It was only performed once. So then Steve gets a hold of me. Hey, I'm cashing in my chits. The Letterman show is over. I'm going to do a movie about these records. For example, the composers of Cabaret were also at the same time working on a Ford tractor convention musical to pay the rent while they were trying to get Cabaret done and things like that. There's also other composers who specialized in these and made dozens, if not hundreds of them, and never knew whether they ever went to record or not, and most of them didn't. So ultimately, the movie, where he also interviews Don Bowles about his records on that regard too, which you can get, you stream this on Netflix too, it's called Bathtubs Over Broadway. And now, because they got the whole budget and everything got it together, now they at least could release some of the songs on this double soundtrack album. And again, the same thing. There's people singing along on the uh, corporate sales convention stuff because Steve had gotten together with one of the composers that he interviewed for the documentary. A couple of the main ones were still alive. And one of them, he took his guitar to the guy's house and they composed a song in this style together, which meant the world to Steve and probably the composer too was used to not getting recognition or anything. It might've been the one who brought Steve up a ladder into an attic where there was just piles and piles of sheet music and programs from these things, all of which were of ones that Steve hadn't even heard of and the like. The sad part of the movie is it's on camera where he repossesses that General Electric record from me. And the worst part is when I heard it, I thought, oh my God, this is even more demented than the bathrooms are coming. This is the greatest one of these I've ever heard. It's so twisted. And the singing Satan is messing with the electricity system, all kinds of other things, but Steve didn't have it. So now it's that rare, apparently. So now he's got one. And, you know, he's getting on camera and then he shows him sitting down at home to listen to it in the movie. And Whatnot. So then that picture I just showed you where I open up the soundtrack album, um, that was choreographed to close the movie where Steve's song is performed, including people who were in the movie in one way or another. Including, Did you make any friends that day? Like, was it hard to convince you to participate? It's amazing. Oh, now, not you at, at all. the end. It, it was easy to get me to participate, but little did I know that the first day before we got to work later on, because we had to record the song the night before so they could get a rough mix together to broadcast for us all to lip sync at the Warner Brothers lot the next day. 
And so waiting in line at this kind of Asian fusion-y place where you order stuff, you get a tray and you go to your table. And then a smaller woman taps me on the shoulder, looking up at me with a weird ass maroonish red wig and stuff. It was obviously a wig. And, and you know, she was, you know, because of the period, she was by a decade older than me or more. She looks up at me, my bathroom my bathroom oh my god it's you <laughs> and yes steve had found her and found another woman from the cast of the bathrooms are coming and the two were good friends back then but had lost contact with each other so on camera not only does steve meet them in a hotel lobby they get to see each other again and one of those this was your life kind of things they're so happy and stuff so then, um, you know, we record the song and I thought I'm never going to get another chance. So I got somebody on my, on my phone to shoot me and the two bathroom women singing the My Bathroom song again into a recording studio, Mike. I mean, hopefully that'll get into any kind of bonus tracks thing if the DVD ever comes out or something. Right now they're just streaming it on Netflix. But then... You, I think, know what movies can be like, too. Hurry up and wait. Hurry up and wait. Okay, we got this camera angle on you. Now we're shooting this, and then we're going to set up for the other one in about four hours from now. And so they give you little trailers to cool your heels, twiddle your thumbs, sleep, or in Don Bowles's case, drink, or whatever. So who all winds up in a trailer together, getting to know each other? Me... Those two women who are very spunky old ladies, I must say, very proud of their work. We just had the greatest time doing them. And uh, me, the two women, and Don Bowles were cooped up in a trailer with each other for hours. There's very little of me in the final version because they had professional show choir singers and dancers, and one of whom, when we're walking along, oh, yeah, I do industrials for a living. That's what they call them, industrials, industrial music. And uh, there we are marching down Main Street. They cast me as the psychedelic plumber. What were you wearing? I was wearing a black and white polka dot shirt and some really cool shades that somebody stole later at a GSM gig on the Canary Islands of all places. And um, I think I got my little black leather hat on too for the thing, as well as marching with a plunger down Main Street, following the show choir. Don Bowles is surrounded by all these comely women and stuff for his part. And uh, and they even have two other people come out. I think one of them might be Sport Murphy because it's Main Street. Of course, there's a record store with records on the street that they want you to buy. And it's all lined with some of these records. So you see that go by too. Bathtubs over Broadway and Jello. You have some more records, too. There's lots of records behind you, but there's some more records behind you that are special to me because you sent them to me, some of them, to cheer me up, didn't you? That was to cheer you up when you had your second stroke, and I found out you were hospitalized, and, you know, you are a dear friend of mine, and I was worried about you, like a lot of people were, and just, you know, just what can I do for him right now? Oh, I know. He thinks he's seen the weirdest records ever made. 
No, he hasn't. He gets subjected to some of these. So I, I put some on the bed, took one phone pick, and one of them is blocked because the cat got in the middle of it and stuff. That was Blaze Star Kitty, who was no longer with us, but uh, she got in the middle of that one. Well, you originally said you wanted to start with American Whitewater. And Till still in this day, you know, people who say that all the good records or the weird finds are gone, they don't look carefully enough in thrift stores and they don't take enough chances. I was like, oh, here comes another loser bar band, but I always grab these unless they look too hopeless. Almost every single one has Proud Mary on it, for one thing. This is a date for a lot of these. And uh, there they are on the back too, American Whitewater. Uh, I better get the old man glasses back out if I can find them. Where did you find them. that Jello Biafra? Where did you find I, that it, record? I'm guessing it was in a thrift store. But when they, they, and where? I have no idea. They, um, you know how it is. You'll find something cool. You buy it for the express purpose of playing it when you get home. Then you're busy when you get home, and it might not get played for 20 years. So. Uh, Anyway, um, they're live at the Red Blazer. Are they going to tell us where the Red Blazer is? Concord, New Hampshire. That's where they're from. And that's probably where I found it, too, in that very state. Unlike a lot of these, it is an autograph for the people who happened to be at the lounge bar that night and saw this fine cover band. They do Johnny Be Good, Wine, Wine, with Brown Sugar, too. My God. Usually it's more like Killing Me Softly with his or her song, well, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of that kind. Leroy Brown is on a ton of them too, including this one. This one, they actually they do Proud Mary, but they have it as a medley with another overly covered song by these bar bands, namely Joy to the World. So, like the term industrial music, there's kind of a um, controversy now where people like Paul Major think of like lounge music as being stuff like this. He's into these too. But um, of course, lounge music after the incredibly strange books came out was meant more like, you know, Martin Denny, exotica music, jazzier cocktaily things, some of which is quite good, of course. And uh, so this is the other side of lounge music, which makes this one better than a lot of them is not only do they do stuff like Brown Sugar and Light My Fire, the singer sounds like a baritone vibrato version of Brian Ferry. He has a really unusual voice for somebody in a bar band who's just trying to get people to buy more chicken wings and pay attention to them instead of the silent football games or whatever. But uh, the voice on here is something. It's kind of like it's a little bit lower pitched than Brian Ferry, which makes it kind of halfway between Ferry and Hino, basically. But this, again, is a bottomless pit. And most used stores will not take these in. Who the hell is going to buy this thing and whatnot? So thrift stores or Evil Bay or Discogs are your best bet to find who is appearing nightly. I think I found this at a flea market in, in um, uh, Syracuse, New York. But Joe Savage, there he is, appearing nightly. And Paul Major considers this one to actually 
be one where the like some of these every once in a while you'll find one that is either so incredibly bad it's great for that reason like cops limited from yakima washington a singing police officer group who do hands down the worst cover version of johnny be good ever among other things and they're trying to look like a teenage big gang one of them has switchblade on the back and they're cops but anyway this guy what do you know he does macarthur's park apostrophe s and uh there's some originals on here black magic followed by dixie time followed by locomotive breath followed by alone again naturally covering gilbert o'sullivan you get the idea here because sometimes every once in a while you'll get one that's got an edge of dementia or something to it where people like paul major and others think this is actually a really interesting record or and you Paul will get Major one. also put out a book, Homemade Records. It's an amazing book, isn't it? That one? Yes, enjoy the experience. Yeah, yes. yeah. There's some of these, I, the one I just I showed I think you, I actually gave that book. It's possible. I don't In I our 2013 it, interview. Again, you're watching the Nardwar Human Serviette show, my 14th interview with Jello Biafra. I think I gave you that book in 2013. Yeah, I mean, they expanded into other kinds of homemade dementia, some of which is very beloved, like the shags you see up there. And I have a lot of these, actually. The one up there, the JNC trio with the really sexy woman from the lounge in the Ozarks in Arkansas or whatever. She does, they do an original called Voodoo Doll. And they do Funnel of Love by Wanda Jackson and some others. That's a genuinely good record. And Xenogenesis in the middle, that's another, um, you know, wannabe religious cult guy with all kinds of writings and sayings that make absolutely no sense. I don't know that row, but then the bottom row, I know about Damien and the Criterions. Of course, Gary Wilson, who somehow got in here, even though he came later and he was known in the new wave world and now performs again every once in a while and is a cult figure to this day. Like I, uh, that DJ Peanut Butter Wolf has been a big champion of Gary Wilson. Oh, there's Robbie the Werewolf. They found, they got him in there too. You know, that's not a loser lounge record. That's like a demented horror novelty folk record from the early 60s that sounds like the cramps at times and stuff. That's an incredible record. Ethel Delaney album here. Here's Ethel with her bus and everything. Ethel Delaney is good. Ethel Delaney is hardcore, old school country, all private press. She's a master yodeler, among other things. She's, uh, you know, a multi-octave yodeler, all in one song. But, and I Jello, don't care. Do you have some more remember. records there in your lap? Yeah, I can't, remember, I can't remember if that book also includes the band Jokers. <laughs> Yeah, you know about the Runaways and whatnot. Well, they were before the Runaways, so there. And uh, here we have the New Relations. And uh, the kicker is with the title, notice the guitars on here. They call them their muftars because they are made with mufflers. And I only can think of two other bands, Tar, the Amphetamine Reptile Band, and that later band Neptune, who made guitars out of metal like this. Although they weren't using found mufflers, they were more supposed to look like guitars. 
And uh, yeah, there they are on the back. I mean, needless to say, the Muftars are the coolest part of this band, to put it mildly. Two brothers and great vibes with the Muftars is the title. They, they div you uh, my way, she's a lady, funny how time slips away, but they do Bebopalula, they do uh, Wooly Bully, and many more. But, and they're uh, respected in the community, aren't they? They were interviewed years later. Like, people remember the mufflers. Well, somebody did, because here, a full feature, I just happened to be in Kansas City when this turned up in the Kansas City Star. Man, can he play that muffler. And sure enough, it's the one of the two brothers who's still keeping the faith after all these years doing that stuff with his muftar the other guy left the business went on to another life and of course guess where he's doing his thing possibly to this day branson missouri jello so there were a lot of independent records around before punk there were tons of them well i mean i mean punk came out at a really really down time major labels had consolidated and decided we have enough of this protest stuff enough of this heavy stuff except black sabbath and led zeppelin and before them stepping will sell so much we'll put up with that but what we really want to steer people towards is soft rock adult rock i mean even people who used to kind of rock like with the birds now they're crosby stills and nash fm rock adult rock and i a little bit younger didn't relate to that at all but the point being the beauty of punk was it didn't just blow all that dumb stuff out of the water and bring back the spirit of rock and roll that would be new wave when it was still an umbrella term that included everybody from doa to blondie to whatever it was all new wave and it was all punk before the majors decided okay we're not going to do punk anymore 78 last one was a dickies in america on a major label till husker do but then uh if you want to put on a little necktie and dance around and sing about the radio then you're new wave and you're okay but anyway the the independent record came back and people were starting their own labels again just to get their stuff out which was part of the beauty up until all the consolidation and dumbing down of the music and oh you want light shows sure how about some disco and stuff and we can even sell you horrible double knit clothes just we want your money but basically you know that we were still at a point even in the 60s where a lot of the cooler songs were on independent labels like liar liar by the castaways was on a local one called soma in the minneapolis st paul area and uh and even the 50s like there were all these stuff that was all on the only record on that label that went anywhere or the only song that band made that they put out you bring back the seven inch the single and it was all album rock by 75 76 of them all album rock you bring back the single as a single a band that only has one or two good songs record them put it out then write more cool good songs and sometimes your first song will be your best song like again liar liar by the castaways i know you know it well Liar, liar, pants on fire. That one, um, that was 14-year-old kids forced to be in a band by their stage parents. They didn't even want to be in a band. And the drummer wrote that song. 14, straight out of the gate, they did that. They did a couple more records later that weren't interesting at all, but that that got on the radio and everything, like just like the Moonrakers did in the Denver area when I was listening to stuff back then. So uh 
there were independents that got some kind of national distribution, but then slowly but surely there was less and less and less, not as much less like major label stuff or major label artists as there are now, but even labels that were big ones like MGM had all kinds of cool stuff. Then Mike Kerb became head of MGM and announced publicly he wanted to get the label more in line with President Nixon. And who gets dropped but Frank Zappa, Velvet Underground, they just picked up the seeds and then they got rid of the seeds. And their big tax write-off scheme, because they were late to the gate with Summer of Love San Francisco stuff, they decided to sign some bands and call it the Boston Sound and hope all those bands tanked so they could lose all the money as a seven-year-in-a-row tax write-off. It's a bad investment. And to their horror, they had Beacon Street Union, Ultimate Spinach, and God, who is the third one? Orpheus. And um, to their utter horror, Ultimate Spinach and Beacon Street Union started selling. Not so much that they were gazillion selling records and the Boston sound is viewed like the San Francisco sound was, but enough that it ruined their tax write-off and stuff. That was the source of that is Klaus Floride who was living in Boston at the time. Anyway, so, but so even then, so there was no more MGM involved because Curb put it all into the Osmonds. And, so people didn't think in terms of putting out their own records, except it turns out people were, but nobody knew because there were no distributors for it or anything. So there are all these bar bands, I was saying, who could only sell those records off the stage or maybe one store in their hometown doing it for them as a friend. Otherwise, you never knew it existed. You would get bands like the Great Pretenders who were big enough in their own little realm, wherever it was, they had their own bus, which is illustrated on the front, but there it is for real on the back. And there they are, yet another one who's doing a, there's a Chuck Berry, there's, oh, feel a whole lot better by the birds. That's not a common one for this. Six days on the road. And do you want to dance in Louie Louie all on the same side and stuff. The great pretenders are back, says the marquee. Rock and roll. Because there was all kinds of circuits for this thing, small towns, small bars, who knows how many bands there were like this in New Jersey or Florida alone. But that's not the great pretenders you want to know. You want to know this great pretenders. And you can barely see the frog on the front or the little pictures on the back. But this is a 70s lounge band where you look closely one of the old Northwest Whalers is in the band, as is on piano only, Jerry Rosley from the Sonics. I noticed Larry Peripa's signature yeah. on that. Yeah, well, basically, from the Sonics. I guess, yeah, I guess he was in it too, or he wouldn't have signed it. Yeah, I mean, I, I got him to sign some stuff. I don't. Can you do show that, that record again? But that was the. Uh, but that was the Sonics. So I go get my record signed because they were such an important band in my life. The minute I heard, the first song I ever heard of theirs was He's Waiting. And a minute and a half into the song, I knew they were going to be one of the best and most important bands I would ever hear. What so did that great. sound like? I know Larry did Charlie Natunas. What did that sound like? Well, here they cover Sea Cruise. They cover Hand Drive. Of course, they cover The Great Pretender. They cover Jailhouse Rock. Granny's Pad, that old instrumental from... By the Viceroy's. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say Jimmy Hanna, but you're right. Um, Summertime Blues. It's mostly 50s-y things. And um, Jer when, when I showed this to Jerry, and I wonder if I'm the only person since then who ever asked him to sign one, and he just looked at me and got all warm. I had so much fun playing in that band. 
And the so-called Sonics reunion of that time, the one that Bomp put out, that apparently, according to them, was a con job where another band who's kind of a hard rock band calling themselves a punk band called The Invaders got Jerry to sing along with their covers of some Sonic songs and then never even asked him before putting it out as a Sonics album on Bomp. One of many horrible things that got done to that band over the years that, uh, you know, thankfully they overcame the bitter experiences enough to enjoy their comeback and set a world record for longest time between album releases of any band 50 years and uh so it was great to spend a little time with them and hang with them at the debauche reno fest festival in reno where i got them to sign the records and stuff and you know very quiet humble guys and you know the bass player had some you know kind of you know conspiracy theory stuff going on, but not the extreme right-wing type. He knew the kind of stuff I knew about, you know, what went on behind the Iraq evasion and drug running with Codergate and stuff like that. So he and I actually ran into each other in a 24-hour restaurant in the wee hours too, so we hung out then. And so then uh, you can imagine both the honor but the nervousness when they came through and played at the Fillmore and they had one guest per show and they asked me to be the guest we did money we did the, the their cover of the barrett strong song that the avengers also do so i was kind of hoping we could get greg ingram or even penelope up there too but they wanted one and they knew me so uh there it was it was kind of neat watching these older guys who'd been doing all these other things in life i think um sax player was a fighter pilot at one point and we didn't discuss politics and uh and um bob lind and uh jerry said what well, jerry what were you doing with this oh i was helping run a paving company and you know, th th that's stuff that they did i think the only one who was going to punk shows and grunge shows in seattle just on his own and not really flaunting who he was was larry Paripa. So he kind of had at least some finger on the pulse of what was going on. And, um, you know, and when I saw him in the little, little bar in Reno for Debosha Reno, I was right front row at a fucking Sonic show and stuff. That was so cool. Larry's guitar sounded like Larry's guitar. And Dusty Watson, the drummer based in LA who they used, he had that drum thing down and didn't try to show off or change things or whatever. He had their thing down and drove the whole band. It, it was it was great. And, and if people um, are wondering, Jello, I'm speaking to Jello Biafra. I'm Nardwar, the Human Serviette. Speaking to Jello Biafra live from your house, and you have a whole bunch of records you're going to show, right? Winding up here. Yeah, well, I, I had to reminisce about the Sonics at least a little bit because that that they were the Sonics. What can I say? You love them too. You know, oh, you amazing. Do. I did not know about the Pretenders at all. I knew about Charlie and the Tunis, Nobody but did. I Nobody did. I mean, I'd ask all kinds of other Sonic files. They didn't know about it either. I mean, that guy, an old friend of mine, who sadly we've lost him too, Phil Irwin, you know, from Rancid Vad and Alcoholics Unanimous and wrote both books and columns under the name the whiskey rebel oh he right sh he showed me that in his living room and he and i said had such a loose trading 
thing. It was kind of like, who can top what I got from this person last time? I got to top this and give them this the next time. The culminating one was Phil's when I got him hip to Simon Stokes. He, he got so into Simon Stokes, he got Jeff Clayton, his best friend from Anti-Scene, into Simon Stokes. And then they started a Simon Stokes cover band called Conqueror Worm. And even finally, we found Simon Stokes and he came out of the woodwork. They had a festival, I think it was in Kansas City, and I got Simon to come out doing the Simon songs with Conqueror Worm. We just lost Simon Stokes within the past two weeks, by the way. And for those who don't know about Simon Stokes, speaking of other great obscure records and stuff, next to the Stooges, he was the most non-flower power kind of guy who came out of the 60s. Out of LA, a lot of stuff about bikers, although he didn't ride, and really graphically violent lyrics at times. Although that wasn't the only kind of lyric he could write and write exceptionally well. But, um, you know, the knockdown, drag out domestic violence fight going all the way down the stairs and stuff, that is a scary song. And Ride on Angel Ain't Far Behind and uh, Big City Blues. <laughs> which he recorded three or four different times. But, and Simon also has a rip your head off raspy voice and stuff. And it's not Cookie Monster stuff. He has quite a range on it too. You know, kind of like, a, I don't know, a, I don't know, a nastier, more cranked up, more evil version of Gary Floyd from the Dicks or something might be a, a loose comparison. We were never able to figure out a way to pry Simon stuff away from dear old Mike Curb and MGM and then the other one from CBS, Simon Stokes and the Black Whip Thrill Band to do a proper reissue of it. So he just keeps getting book bootleg now. So you can imagine my thinking, oh my God, punk has happened and here Iggy's back and Rocky Erickson's back, Cy Staxon, Pink Fairies, all these people that, do, that I really liked are doing cool stuff again. Where's Simon Stokes? God, considering those lyrics, I wonder if he's in jail. But then years later, I found out, no, no, he's not in jail. He just went into writing songs for movies, had a restaurant or two and did all these other things and was still making music. And then he produced an album by Timothy Leary and another by Russell Maines from the American Indian Movement. Anyway, he crept back into our scene after a while too. And so I finally meet the guy and he turns out to be this super sweet, nice guy, really just an amazing, he turned out to be an amazing friend. So for a while, the ritual was he'd come to my spoken word shows or one of the Guantanamo School of Medicine ones. And no matter what everybody else wanted to do, me and Simon would go out to Jerry's or some other place, just the two of us and catch up on all kinds of things. You know, there's a very Zen kind of shamni spiritual thing about him by then too. Just an amazing guy to know. And he was much older than a lot of people too. He was something like 86 when he died just now, which put him well into his 30s when he was doing Simon Stokes and the Nighthawks, where uh, they even had one guitar player that Simon kicked out because he was hanging out with a guy named Charlie. But even that was enough later that when they busted the Manson family over the Tate and the LaBianca murders, they arrested Simon too. 
because they thought he might be connected with them, which the only connection was he threw somebody out of his band for being connected with them. Although he obviously knew those people and stuff. So um, the, he, he was in, he, they, they, fought, they let him go after a couple of days. But uh, the guy, had, there's an Ugly Things interview with him from a couple of years ago, where there's all kinds of stories like this from the incredibly live life of the incredible Simon Stokes. Yeah, Jello, Ugly Things Mag has an amazing profile, as you mentioned, on Simon Stokes. People should check out Ugly Things. It's amazing. Yeah, you really want in-depth reporting by somebody who knows what they're doing, or a lot of writers who know what they're doing. It's a deep read. If you want to know about any band, Mike Stacks can tell you everything about them. And so uh, I'm really glad they did one on Simon. It was a British guy, Gray Newell, who did the interview, and he interviewed me about him, too. I think that might be a sidebar. It's somewhere in there as well. There's uh, album number one, the MGM one, Simon Stokes and the Nighthawks. And uh, I think about all he did was the graphic design there, but the cover's credited to Cal Schenkel, who did all the Zappa illustrations. And you are Jello Biafra. Jello, anything more on Simon Stokes? Yes, actually. I mean, yeah, he's been on my mind a lot lately because I knew we were about to lose him, but still, you know how it hits you when somebody's gone and stuff. Even if he lived a very full, successful life as a great human being. I mean, the Ugly Things piece even has a picture of him all tightly coiffed with grease in his hair and everything before he was in music trying to become a movie star and stuff because he's from Boston originally thus the accent he had when we talked to him but also a little bit after the ugly things are kind of around the same time actually I got a call from Todd Westover who was one of the drummers in the Bell Rays over the years and graphic designer for Hot Rod Magazine and drums and a million other bands including the later Simon Stokes stuff where he didn't like come out and open for the Melvins or something, which might've widened his audience. He was like, oh, Jelly, you should come down. I'm gonna play the key cup. I'm opening for David Allen Coe. Cause Simon was more of a country guy or so he thought by then, still with another version of that always very soulful voice, which was still largely there when Todd's told me, look, you know, you, so you might know Simon's mind is starting to go a little bit. He's repeating himself and whatnot why don't we do a show for him? A celebration of Simon's life. As he put it to me later, usually they do this after the person dies. Why not do it when the guy's still alive and he can enjoy the whole thing? And he found through lots of research and stuff, I think all the guys in the Blackwood Thrill Band came back. And then there's some guest guitarists and Todd was playing the drums and whatnot and Simon's children, his wife were there and everything else. And they wanted me to be one of the guests and sing some Simon songs. Just like, you know, the Sonics, only more songs. But we came for rehearsal and everything. And that was another big thrill for me. And aside from Simon is Butch Seneville, who's the guitar player on both Simon Stokes and the Nighthawks and stayed on to the Blackwood Thrill Band. And he is to Simon what Ron Ashton was to the Stooges. That distinctive and that uniquely cool a guitar player. Turned out he was teaching school in the Phoenix, Arizona area. He comes out, so I actually got to rock on stage with Butch fucking Seneville too. Had he lost his skills? No, he had not. 
It was amazing, even though it was very kind of thrown together, kind of more like we, what you'd expect on one of those lounge records. But we go to the rehearsal, and then Simon comes up to me and looks me right in the eye. Jello, this is the greatest day of my life. You know, and it was very touching to know that this was touching him so much and we could give back for him and all. And so then we actually do the show in front of people and stuff. And um, Gwen from the Pandoras was there and many other, some of Spindrift showed up and many others. Um, next Spindrift is on Alternative Tentacles, by the way, watch out for that one. And um, you're gonna wanna do him, them for sure. But anyway, um, so what it turned out to be was Simon would sing when he wanted to sing, which in some cases meant that he would just decide partway through a song he wanted to join in. And his mind was such that he might do a verse that we had just done or not. And a lot of the time it was me or somebody else. Terry Reed was there too. They were old buddies. And um, they, uh, they kind of, Simon would sing when he wanted to. Then if Simon was taking the lead, you kind of steer him back where the song was supposed to go and then uh, move on to the next song and stuff. And um, it, it, was, it was a great night for everybody. We we're all so glad we did that. And in the end, it may have gone on and off of several different rails and sets of tracks, but a good time was had by all. Well, thank you, Jello, for all these amazing memories of Simon Stokes. You still have quite a few records to show me. I think way back probably with part three are you okay still for time for part three where else am i gonna go now you're like a wesley demon in my head and there you are on my zoom screen and whatnot yep we're going on to part three so stay tuned right now coming up part three nardwar versus jello by oofal afra yeah are you? I am still Jello Biafra. You don't even remember that by now? This is part three of this interview and you've forgotten my name more times than, I don't know, people like Nancy Pelosi or Diane Feinstein forget where they are now. Thank you so much for part three. Part three. Thank you, Jello Biafra. And I want to begin part three of our interview with these simple words. Fighter. Fighter. And why do you want to begin it with that? Well, it's one of the wildest album covers I've ever seen in my life. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, it's because, you know, I think I know why, too. But we were talking about there were all these other obscure records, independent records, not just 50s, 60s, or 1977 through the punk explosion onward. They were always there. It's just being able to keep up with them or find out about them just plain evaporated and stuff. But there were all these other records and we showed some of the bar band ones and things like that. But there were also like psychedelic bands 
there was some of which to go ahead for four figures now. Who knows how much that Bent Wind album from Ontario is worth now? Who knows? And stuff. It's a, like a homemade light psych Canadian record that I've never ever seen a real copy of it. But um, apparently it's very, very hard to come by because nobody knew about it and stuff. And who knows what happened to them all. There was another one I have like that called by a band called Rain, just R-A-Y-N-E, Four Brothers from Bayou Country in Louisiana. It's a heavy rock band band with really dark, scary lyrics and things. Then they pressed up the record and couldn't find anybody to do anything with it, let alone get any gigs. So they used almost all of them for skeet shooting practice. But luckily, my old buddy Paul Major found the band. That's what the collectors of that kind of stuff do. And sure enough, there were a few left in a closet. And, and over a few, uh, something longer than this interview to negotiate, I got one in a trade. I think that's <laughs> one that has a song called Paint the Day Red. You know, going on a shooting spree and stuff like that. And that was before most of the shooting sprees even. But I think the one you want is a... Uh, Arkansas rocker by this band called Fighter. And uh, initially intriguing, just because you have this band sitting on a bluff playing their guitars, aren't they? Yeah, they're kind of aiming them at these cops down below who have their rifles aimed at the band, thus establishing themselves as a badass Southern rock band, complete with one hell of a big ass drum set and everything. But this isn't just some lounge band covering Proud Mary or anything. This is all original material. And having an, having an ear for that kind of music, because I grew up on it before punk, and then I kind of purged myself of it in the early years of punk, and then slowly but surely went back. And yeah, Black Sabbath is pretty good. And so is this Captain Beyond album. So is this Highway Robbery album, another all-time classic, although that was on RCA. Could have played stadiums. You can't say that about too many of those bands. Highway Robbery, you could. And another one that's coming up. Uh, can we see the fighter cover again? And have you seen cops pointing guns at guys with the guitars in any other record cover? Not on a record cover. Seen close with LAPD attacks on punk shows and things. But uh, nothing quite like that. No, no. The, and and I'm, it looks like they actually got the cops to do it for them because I think those are real cop cars and stuff. So uh, that's what you do when there's nothing else to do in their hometown of Moralton, Arkansas. That's where this is from, is Moralton, Arkansas. Turns out it's 40, 50 miles outside of Little Rock. So they were in some suburb or whatever when this was what they came up with. Where did they play? Was there a little roadhouse circuit in Texas? I don't know. You and can another... actually check them out on YouTube. That record is on YouTube. But is this other Arkansas band on YouTube? Let alone if they ever played with Fighter, Meet Zorro and the Blue Footballs. Amazing. Yeah, they're from Fayetteville, where the big college is. You know, University of Arkansas, where their team is the Razorbacks. How about them hogs? So these people undoubtedly had to play for hog fans over and over and over again. It's kind of like sort of pseudo swingy, pseudo 20s music, although they do end with a funk song. So they kind of had to do all things to all people. Another one called Disco Madness. 
which isn't even making fun of disco and some of those songs are supposed to be making fun of stuff and they they cover like a louis jordan song or something that was zorro and the blue footballs a good time band for your for your local bar but there are all kinds of other like heavy rock bands of varying reputations there was another one this one's from tennessee ambrose singing bust your nose Unfortunately, the music isn't quite as nose-busting as you would like, but it's still yet another one. You find it once. You never see it again and stuff. Or the other people get a hold of them. You got to trade them or something else. <laughs> and then meet the Bandito family. Another Arkansas one, I do believe, Ozark Recording Studio anyway. So that points to the Ozarks Mountains to me. The Bandito family, one of whom is quite young, and I'm not sure which one. I think it's one of the older ones, who in spite of it's supposed to be like kind of 70s rock and roll, and they know what they're doing, the lead guitar player really, really wants to be Dick Dale. That's good. The, yes, exactly. And he's in the wrong band, but that makes this a really unique record. And Paul told me there's another one by them too. It kind of blew his mind because Paul Major got out of the weird record scene altogether and started putting out his own. I never even saw a guitar around his place, but he's a really good guitar player and does business as en Endless Boogie, who do do Endless Spacey Boogie, not Grateful Dead stuff, more cool psych and whatnot. But then you go running all kinds, here, here's Hector. This is Hector doing his song album, Deep Hair. And there is Hector's portrait on the back and stuff. I don't know how much, how much of this one is even good. It's in the box with the cool ones of these. Now, this is one you need to, you need to look at, see what you can get any information on this. It's a Canadian record, Echoes and a Dream. Obviously very homemade and kind of, dedicated with love to this girl i'm wondering if this uh rich kid or something inside who i guess his name keith torrett is the one who uh made this thing and um very late heartfelt labor of love kind of psychedelic -y throughout by the way and i think for some reason i associate it with calgary i don't think it's because somebody told me it was from calgary but you know you got the wizard on the cover and everything else but none of the people who collect this shit had ever heard of it before and know what it is what is it keith porritt echoes in a dream and there's the girl again on the front cover too and stuff it's all for her and everything did you get a I chance to listen to listen i associated with cal i think i associate with calgary because i'll bet you i got it at record land that's what I was wondering about. Do you listen to everything that you have in your house? Like, have you heard all these records? Because I've been shopping records with you before, and you, like, buy whole sections and probably don't have time to listen to the whole section that you buy. I am the Imelda Marcos of records, or Citizen Kane, or Michael Jackson on a shopping spree or something. I don't know. I'm not proud of that part, but I do... A lot of them I did listen to first and bought them because I want to listen to them more. 
and want them in my library. I mean, I'm a librarian's kid. I'm very archive conscious and stuff. And so, um, you know, sometimes it'll just be on hunches too. Like I, I either put that Keith Port album, it's either terrible or it's one of those records that would blow a certain kind of collector's mind if they ever saw it. And it's more one of those and stuff. It ain't bent wind, but I'd love to know what the hell it actually is. And here we have the Sons of Mosiah. This is more of a homemade folky one and stuff. It's Mormons too, which is really, really odd when you think that at the time this was made, African-Americans still couldn't get into heaven in the Mormon church. And Jello, what's on the back of that record? Well, as you can see, it's Mormons at a time when African-Americans couldn't get into heaven and the leader is a black guy. And even though it's more of a folky kind of churchy folky, but highly listenable for that kind of thing record, here they are on the back is an article from the Washington Post of all things saying rockers bring message to Mormons rockers they ain't no rockers and that post maybe porter maybe he should have known better although this was early mid 60s when this was published and i can't find it on the back so the name is inside it's credited to a washington post staff reporter whose last name is mckay is that ian and alec mckay's father yes it is I finally scored another one of these and sent it to Ian and he was very happy that that turned up. He had no idea it existed and stuff till I told him. And I couldn't resist injecting one last one of these lounger bar band records because every once in a while, not only can you sometimes run into one that is actually genuinely not just good, but great which was an Illinois trio called the Kaplan Brothers who made three albums that still have never been reissued. Actually, there's a fourth one too, an earlier one where they're covering old Israeli folk songs electrically. I've just seen it on YouTube. I'd love to get one of those if one ever turns up. Even Paul and my friends didn't even know it existed. Kaplan Brothers, the key there, it's very loungy. You can tell that's their audience and their circuit but it's mostly sophisticated original material, kind of piano driven. And there's not just kind of good prog rock there, but there's a pronounced Ennio Morricone thing going on there at times too. You know, the guy famous for the spaghetti set Western soundtracks who just recently died. This is another one of those bar records by a guy who went on to better things. That's amazing. Is that his first recording? No, because he was Buddy Holly's bass player before that and stuff. And here he is back in Arizona at JD's, which was connected with a lot of Arizona garage rock stuff, too. Live at JD's, Waylon Jennings. Waylon Jennings. That is amazing. Where did you get that record? <laughs> Ironically, I got it in the same back room of unpriced records at Black and Red Records and Books in Arvada, Colorado, that the Fighter album turned up in as well. What a score. You know, it's, I, 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I can't score everything because then the guy's got to price them if they're going to go out the door. And some of them, I like, oh, my God, I thought there was going to be way more. And then, of course, there's others. Oh, my God, I can't afford that in a million years. It gets to stay there and stuff. And yeah, this one was really high for me. It was 50 bucks, but I thought it was going to be 500, having never seen the record or heard of its existence before. So I was... I was very happy to have it. And there is rock and roll on here too. What happens if I show this to Shooter Jennings? The coolest one of those private press ones that actually really rock and they were after that audience and not just playing to people covering Proud Marion bars. The, the, the one that blows them all away is this is from Liverpool in England. The band is Pinnacle and it's called Assassin. And there they are on the back, too. This has been bootlegged and possibly legit reissued, too, by now. I don't know. But this one, it not only really rocks and it's well-recorded and well-made, it's more Sabbath than Deep Purple, although they have a keyboard player, but they're really, really good at it. Really good songs to the point where it's one of the few of those ultra-rare sought-after collectible Adidas records that I would say they could have played stadiums. Where'd you get that, that record? Good. Where'd you get that? Um, it, in a used record store in Liverpool that a friend took me to, and they had a whole huge section of Liverpool rock music. And almost all of it was Mercy Beat originals and things. All kinds of originals by bands you never even knew made albums and stuff. Not necessarily the best Mercy Beat albums, but pretty cool to see that they actually did more stuff than I thought they did, see what they looked like, whatever. And um, and that there was a second or third Ian and the Zodiacs album and stuff like that. And then in the middle of all the Liverpool beat rock bands was an original Pinnacle record for 15 pounds. Immaculate copy to Oh my God, I can't believe this. I never thought I'd see one of these. So, uh, I took it home. And you again are Jello Biafra speaking to me, Nardwar to Human Serviette, part three of our 2020 interview. This is our 14th interview, the first interview since 2013. But thank you for taking the time. Now, or the 16th. It's part ba three. Boom. Yeah, it is indeed. It is indeed. And Jello, thank you again for sending me some records when I was in the hospital. I just got out of the hospital. I got your email. I got a photo. What exactly did you send me to lighten my mood? Well, the ones you wanted to see again and everything. You know, I, and not like the gifts you sending me. I had just sent you pictures of records. You know, I'm being more stingy. My apologies. I'll figure something else out for that. But I know you want you wanted me to show this one I got in a thrift store in Chicago, Aggie's Telephone Jams. It is on a Chicago polka music label, but it's basically a comedian. It's it's little you know recording spoken word vignettes, and you can't get this woman off the phone. And that's her whole thing: is the woman you can't get off the phone. An amazing discovery. Thank you again for the picture of that record. Oh, yeah. Great art on the back, too. <laughs> and then, uh, well, you, you wanted punk for a minute. You're not going to get punk, but hey, anarchy, dude. The anarchic system. 
which is actually a slightly glammy radio pop band from France. But that was their name. What year? I would guess because of the glam overtones, uh, mid-70s with that one. I mean, you can tell by the hairdos, too. You can tell by the by the do's and by the clothes and all that. I mean, that look got so run into the ground so bad that people began cutting their hair into spikes and putting safety pins in their clothes and stuff. And you have a Canadian holy grail, don't you? A Canadian holy grail. Oh, I have several. Which one do you mean? Which one are you thinking of this time? The mod... Oh, yeah. Okay. Now we're going into your demented 60s scene that was like no other. The Quebec people were the most bizarre of all in terms of fashion, but it's not far behind with the British, who aren't really British, mod beats. They were, were they from Toronto or something? I don't know. And of course, nobody in America knew. I, I doubt they even knew David Clayton Thomas, who was a huge star at one point, singer of Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Number one was Canadian, and number two made really good records before he went into Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and made arguably not so good records, although he sure had a great voice from the get-go. We're talking about David Clayton Thomas and the Shays, of course, and then the next one, where I, maybe they brought him to L.A., I don't know, that incredible single called Brainwashed. You wanted to cover that, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, I think you wanted me to do it with the evaporators. I finally, I think, got Al Jorgensen to listen to the song because sure, Guantanamo School of Medicine could do it or I thought about showing it to the Melvins when I was recording with them, but it really need that, that riff, the main one is so deadly and heavier than almost any so-called 60s punk I've ever heard. It really, really needs to be a large song. It's got that the groove, room for Al's great big drums and great big guitars. I wish I could talk him into it. I don't know. He kind of has to think it's his idea or he doesn't do it. I mean, there's been more talk of another Lard album from him recently than there has been in I don't know how long. I mean, normally every three to four years, he announces another Lard album without us ever recording anything. Cello by Afro. Let's hop over to Quebec, shall we? What do you have from Quebec? Well, as soon as I spotted them, I just kind of thought, that well, you don't see this every day in the United States. These costume bands, these concept bands, like Les Classelles being one, and at the time, or there had been some TV commercials, a long-running bunch of TV commercials for Glad sandwich bags called The Man from Glad like the man from uncle, the man from glad. And he'd fly out of the sky in one of those little jet packs, bringing people plastic bags to save the day. And he had white hair like this. And I, when I saw these guys for the first time, I thought, oh my God, an entire band of the man from glads. And you know, there's another one where it's not just the white hair, but they've got white guitars, white amplifiers, white drums, you know, you want to talk about a band? Yeah, that's white people. Well, yeah, they are white people. And they are intentionally. And a row of another one of their albums down by the drum riser, just in case you don't get the hint. And 
I don't know whether they came first and then other people, like what happened after the mummies hit around here, thought they needed to start their own costume bands. Like there was the mummies, then Mike Lucas does the Phantom Surfers, and then Mike Lucas does a bunch of other ones like the Go Nuts, and of course the Knights of the New Crusade, which was an entire fake Christian rock band with medieval Life of Brian uniforms on and a sword and everything else. And Christians fell for them to the point where they got booked at real Christian rock festivals. And their lyrics were so like tongue in cheek, hard line, where it took a while to realize they weren't really a Christian band, let alone a Mike Lucas band, until the one called Dangers of Dating. Then I knew this had to be a gay. But anyway, yeah, well, what, back what to about the trash woman? Yeah, trash women. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Tina Lucchese was in that band too. She was a drummer and you got to admire her. She's just worked so tirelessly over the, over the years for those kind of bands, always playing her drums, singing in other bands like Top Ten or the Bobby Teens, playing drums and Trash Women and a bunch of other bands. I think she's actually the drummer in Midnight Snacks. And she has Down at Lil's, which started as her hair salon. And then they were mowing to selling cool used clothes and used records and stuff. Jello Biafra, more of the Canadian costume bands. Yeah, because this one that's called Spectacle or Spectacla or whatever. And what can be more spectacular when you're up against that kind of competition than just dress as Romans instead? Uh, Cesare Le Romans, there's some great video footage I think you sent of me on an old television show and Cesare had quite the stage moves going on. They were kind of unique to him. Lift one knee, then lift the other knee and bounce back and forth kind of deal. They had some energy to them too. Bunch of stuff of theirs. But then, not to be outdone by Le Classel, of course you're then going to get Le Excentrique or however you, I'm sorry, pardon my French, it's probably wrong. Even if my real last name is Boucher, I'm generic American. Instead of the white hair, they had to have pink hair and pink clothes and pink guitars and everything. And what I'm told is that this entire album is French language covers of Beach Boys songs performed by pink people. And uh, there's all kinds of weird Lost Sixties things we never knew about down here. Like, oh, you're gonna introduce a guy named Terry Black. Call his album The Black Plague. He's from Vancouver, BC. The art on these things is just amazing to me too. Or another another Canadian one, Le Michel. And uh, their rhythm et blues, but you know, just, you get these for the covers and because nobody in America knows about this French Canadian scene that was only there, wasn't even in France. Cello Biafra, when Bruno opened his bigger store, did you find any stuff there? Oh yeah, that was the one called Discavel, named in tribute to Escavel. He's getting all into Exotica now, and I may have even been the one who turned him on to Escavel. I don't remember, because we were talking about that for a while. And I started finding all these old, like that uh, Le Michel album came from there, and uh, maybe the red cover Le Classelle came out of there too. But there was more and more and more of them, a lot of instrumental ones too. I guess you had tons of instrumental bands, many of whom played instrumentals with in French, basically. They had those kind of names. They had uh, French titles and stuff. 
And then there were other ones, like there was one called the, the Black Plague is enough, but then there's also, you know, you have your instrumental, and how are you calling it Elephant Rage? Or no, that's the name of the thing. It's, it's the Echo Men, that's right. They do Elephant Rage, that's their own instrumental. They do Wipeout and several other ones. And I finally, I think, realized, because I found so many of these things one time when I was there, like, I'm never gonna see this again. That was probably the collection in Bruno's basement he'd showed me years earlier when I marveled out of all these things I didn't know about, all the wild art and the, the look and all that. I mean, that's probably where I found him too. Canada also fascinating for other things. I mean, Stompin' Tom Connors is completely unknown down here. And he, to me, just might be just about the best country singer of all time. You know, I know there wouldn't be no Stompin' Tom without Hank Williams or to what well, he credits Wilf Carter, a fellow Canadian country pioneer. But uh, amazing, amazing stuff there. And of course, we talked about these lounge bands and people sold stuff off the stage. I have one that I wanted to show. I couldn't find it when I looked for it. I mentioned it all, can't remember their name, but it's the only record I have from Yellowknife. And it's one of those kind of bands. The rural bands and the homemade stuff can be fascinating. Like here's, here's the Blue Boys. And notice not all of them are boys and not all of them are young, but it's the hometown band complete with bandstands playing all together. Really interesting bass that guy's got. I think he's in second from the uh, left or the right, depending on how you're looking at it. I think this is one of two I got at the same time from No Means No's later guitarist, Tom Holliston, who I originally met as somebody who really liked weird records. And so when I'd go and be in Victoria, he'd have something to hand me just to weird me out by what exactly it was and everything. He gave me a single about, found it pulled out of a store of somebody singing about Stompin' Tom's foot the foot that would keep time that gave him his name and he'd stomp on a piece of plywood which he slowly stomped a hole through every night when he played and uh, so later his fans would mob him wanting him to sign pieces of plywood and everything so there was that one i mean people told me oh yeah he's this weird guy who likes really weird records when he's tired of them he leaves them at bus stops in victoria but Tom found another receptacle for that. And lo and behold, then he has the show business giants, I think with Scott Henderson, right? And then he's in no means no. I think I met him through Steve from the Neos originally, actually, not from no means no. He was also the one who came up with another wonderful piece of Canadiana from the prairies, the Altamont Orchestra. Just enjoy the, the view of these fine people and stuff. And uh, it's a double album, too. There's all the titles on the back with a, some random picture of some flat country road. Could be Saskatchewan, could be Manitoba, Alberta, wherever. And then once again, double album, gatefold. They went to town on the, in, on the inside. Just went to town. Jello, for gigs in 2021, what do you think about gigs coming up in 2021? Well, um, I don't know if Guantanamo School of Medicine is going to play at all. I don't know if I'm going to perform at all. I am 
I've kind of blocked out 2021 as something where I may not do anything. You know, I could stand to be in better physical shape than I am now for one thing. Plus, of course, there's COVID and being the age I am and with some health issues now that I didn't have before, I don't want to risk catching that thing because I have to operate as though if I get COVID, I'm dead. That's how I have to be, which not only makes me think, you know, I am not going to go out and play for people and be in crowded rooms until the coast is really clear. And I think to all those dressing rooms, we all know so well in all those dives we've played over the years that may not have had anybody mop the floor in 50 years, or if you're across the Atlantic in 250 years, and you never know what's growing and living down there that you might take home with you. I haven't gotten sick very much on these tours, thankfully, but you know, you're always a little vulnerable when you're like gave it all, left it on the stage and, you know, half exhausted, you know, dripping wet and everything. You never know what can happen. And even as you're fighting off a cold or a flu, every last thing like that you're fighting off on tour is taxing your immune system that much more. And if COVID comes in, it may decide to stay. And there's already a new strain in England they're trying to control now. I just hope this isn't a permanent thing and we're stuck with no more live music. It's got to run around with masks on all the time. You and I may never see each other in person again. So I guess we have to do this a little more often or I'll never see you, old friend. And uh, I hope it doesn't come to that, but I am, I'm not going to risk doing anything dumb. Let's put it that way. Thus, people are saying, oh, yeah, they're booking the festivals in August again and all that. They're not booking me. I especially don't want to have to piss away all my own money because I'm the only one who would have any in the band to buy plane tickets for Europe and back for like seven people or more, including the crew, and then not be able to take the, get on the plane. You know, none of us can afford that either. So I'm hoping... It'll come back, but it's gonna. It, I don't know how it's gonna how it's gonna work at first. I mean, at this point, because of COVID and the new lockdowns for good reason, and I've been pretty hardcore about that. Um, I don't see going out and playing until I'm at least comfortable going out and seeing somebody else play which is usually about the only time I'm in bars, but that's often when they're crowded, sometimes with way too many people, breathing and sneezing away as human beings do. I mean, these things can happen. I mean, there was a time in 1983, Dead Kennedys had to cancel a big tour. Other people did. Me and Klaus both got sicker than we've ever been in our lives. To this day, in my case, it was just some horrible, horrible thing, horrible throat pain. I stood up and blacked out and collapsed and missed my glass table by inches and stuff. That table is now in the living room. You know, that would have been horrible. It was called mycoplasma, as it turned out. And it was hitting all kinds of people besides the scene. But everybody who got it, we all traced it back to one MDC show at the Mabui. Thank you so much for taking the time to show your records, Jello. I really appreciate that. I really, really do. And spending all this time 
people really have enjoyed well, what our- brings us go ahead People have enjoyed our interviews over the years. In fact, I'm not sure if you remember Bob Cutler. He emailed me. Oh, very well. He did sound for DOA in the mid-90s. And he said, the next time you interview Biafra, please make him answer each question in the style and form of his high school geometry teacher, Mr. You uncork him. We're going to be here till part 11 or something. You know, the, yeah, I, I mean, we, we, we nicknamed him Quilly because he kept putting W's in front of words where they didn't belong. You've seen him at spoken word shows too. I left him out of the spoken word shows for the longest time. He was a geometry teacher who was instantly odd even before this stuff started. And you know he 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 had the same same accent as the people in the Fargo movie, and had Charlie Chaplin pants in the seventies, and skinny black ties, and a flannel hunting shirt over his white shirt, or he had a suit jacket with kind of wings on it and stuff, and uh, you know a charming, endearing, endearingly odd guy from the get go, and then things began to get weird. Now. We're talking about the angle C A B. Excuse me, B. Angle A D. Boy, am I having a time today? And it grew and it grew. And me and another friend in an earlier class period began writing these quotes down. He was normal probably 75 to 99% of the time. But when he wasn't, a great surrealist master was at work. And then he started tripping on words more. And like, he'd draw some triangles. Now, we working with Klangagi Truders. No, 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 with a silver chalk holder in his hand. Congruent triangles, or congruent triangles, or congruent, where was there? Excuse me, I. Oh, yes, triangles. No, tringlers. Oh, no, triurglers. Oh, I can't even try. (laughs) He didn't like it when he caught himself doing these things and stuff. And then after a while, there were Freudian slips about food, Freudian slips about sex, and Freudian slips about Watergate because it was going on at the time, but uh, uh, Mr. Quilly, do do fluorescent lights save energy? Well, it depends a lot on the boobs, er, blubs, no, bulbs that you use. Or uh, now you can't, oh gee, can't lerve a radicler in the (laughs) derominator. Or, uh, so, problems for tomorrow, take problems awa, two, three, fork, bacon. <laughs> what were you supposed to do with that? I love your what? voices, Jello. I love, like, the Bill Barr voice on What Would Jello Do? You were amazing oh, yeah. with voices. It went on, you said, like, for <laughs> half an hour? Bill Barr, one where I was reading stuff to show it a right way extremist he was, I read a paper he wrote for Catholic Wire magazine where he talked about how society was going to hell and being so degenerate. People, there's even people spreading condoms. 
and, and, and joining in fire and metal groups. Ah! You know, I, I, I hadn't planned that ahead of time, but what would Jello do? Little rant casts that have replaced the spoken word tours, because I couldn't do spoken word in Watanakumo School of Medicine at the same time. There just isn't enough time to like do it right and stuff. So um, instead you get the instant rants of what would Jello do? There's some more now, but that one, that one was about extreme Catholic fundamentalists because one got on the Supreme Court the very next week. Amy Coney Barrett, who may be the most extreme right-wing person on that whole court now, replacing the great progressive Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the biggest raised middle finger from Trump and Mitch McConnell of the entire Trumpamuck or Trumpsy, you know, T-R-U-M-P-Z-I era of all of them long-term. 6-3 majority fundamentalist religious extremists and Barrett and Barr connect way back because they're both extreme, not fundamentalist evangelicals or people picking up rattlesnakes or speaking in tongues. Oh, yes, actually, Amy Comedy Barrett does because she's in a cult that does the, the holy roller stuff only with Catholicism. Anyway, they are extreme even by extreme Catholic standards. And there's already other extreme Catholics on that court the Chief Justice and Samuel Alito. That makes four of them, Brett Kavanaugh. And uh, there's it's a 6-3 Catholic majority, too. Not all of them are the right-wing fundamentalist ones, but that's just, that's just kind of weird, too. But uh, yeah, Barrett and Barr are horrifying. Jello Biafra, any other records you want to show the people that are watching the Nardwar show? Well, just in case you didn't see the first two parts, we can always show the cover one more time right about now of the new Guantanamo School of Medicine album, Tea Party Revenge Porn, available online because the hard copies aren't finished yet. But order them anyway, and we'll get them to you, or at least check it out online. And uh, it's uh, got all kinds of fun things on it. We were talking about William Barr. There's a song on there called Taliban USA for what they're about to do to women's reproductive rights and more. But uh, then a couple more in the, like the homemade, incredibly strange ones. This is another one I've only ever seen once. Got it from Paul Major, actually. Not a heavy psych record. No, it's Esther James doing, uh, what's the name of this? Yes. No man is above the law. I have kept the faith. And basically, it's an entire concept album of her own Calypso songs on how much she hates Congressman Adam Clayton Powell, who was a huge, powerful congressman from Harlem in the 60s, considered a civil rights leader and everything. He was there forever. He was also a notorious crook to the point where at one point he served one of his terms hiding out in the Bahamas and stuff. So a mixed bag. Now he has a pretty good reputation. But here we have uh, Adam Smart, Esther Smarter, and uh, an attempt on my life where she blames Adam Clayton Powell for trying to kill her and stuff. I can't remember why he was supposed to be after her, but she made a whole album about the whole thing. And 
Now we've got these lunatics with their machine guns and their monster pickup trucks running around with their Trump flags in the back. He's got himself his own big neo-Nazi militia now. Trump is not going to go away, nor is Trumpism. And the last thing you want to run into is instead of the music we like, the American Gun Album. An entire concept. What do you think it's about? It's by gun fanatics for gun fanatics. Where'd my old man glasses go? What do we got here? Dedicated to the right to keep and bear arms. And it's like, uh, thank you, Smith and Wesson, God, guts, and guns to serve and protect. America was born with a gun in her hands. We're rednecks and we're going to keep our guns. Never mind the dog. Beware of owner. Gun-toting woman. If guns are outlaws, only outlaws will have guns. This is all different songs. The survivalist. It's my alternative point of view. Yes, just uh, this is what they want, not just for America's future, but for Canada's future. Where did he get that record? I might have been a thrift store. I might have found it in a store. Thought, oh my, I can't believe this exists. But I guess it's going to have to. And this, it's kind of like super cornball, like post Garth Brooks country rock country. If that makes any sense. Jello Biafra, why should people care about Jello Biafra and alternative tentacles and GSM? <laughs> Boy, that's the most hardball question you've ever asked me. Maybe since the first time you accosted me with a video camera. I don't know. Um, I'll answer it this way. Is that um, I think for the same reasons that brought us here today, you know, you like interviewing kooky people and musicians and showing weird records when I'm on because we kind of became friends over that, among other things. So I'm just grateful after... Uh, 40 plus years of doing that. It's even over the 40th anniversary of the label was last year too. And Alternative Tentacles still surviving in spite of Dead Kennedys being yanked away by ungrateful ex-band members and sold down the river in unspeakable ways, including an upcoming remix version of Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables. But my God, who do they think is gonna buy this and stuff? People didn't know even flock in millions of numbers to buy the remixed Let It Be or the re-remixed Let It Be album, the Beatles album. So, and of course, I was completely cut out of the whole thing by those guys. It took four lawyer letters, the only way we communicate now, their choice for them to even fess up. This is going to be part of a double album with the original album and this awful remix. And then there's going to be a video with it and there's going to be a booklet with it and I'm allowed no say. I wasn't even told it was happening. So all I can say is some people may like it, but buyer beware. And for crying out loud, if you're thinking of getting it for the remix, listen before you buy. Well, thank you very much. Oh, look at that. Look at that product placement. The label where the legit Dead Kennedys albums were. Alternative tentacles. The logo that's launched 10 zillion t-shirts. And you can even get the coffee cups right now. We're making them again. A lot quicker than you can get the vinyl on Tea Party Revenge porn. Yeah. Well, I didn't even thank know you, you had one of those. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
Jello Biafra, keep on rocking in a free world. And keep on trying to preserve it as a free world, too. Wait till you get your own Trump. Harper was just the beginning. Keep on washing your hands in a free world. Good advice. Do 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 do. Still listening, I hope, to the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show. And you just heard right there, The Gruesomes with Je Cherche, which actually is a cover of Les Lutens, mentioned in my interview with Jello Biafra. My three-part interview with Jello Biafra. Hopefully, you heard all of it. And in it, we referred to Les Lutens. And that was The Gruesomes with the cover of Les Lutens. And we're going to end the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show with The Gruesomes again doing another cover of 
Je cherche the same cover except in English. The exact same music except in English. I'm searching. So we heard Je cherche by the Gruesomes, a cover by Les Lutins, who actually released that record in about 1966 in Quebec. Yes, they're from Quebec and they probably sold about 100,000 copies. So, to end a Nardwar de Human Serviette radio show, here's the Gruesomes with Je cherche, aka I'm searching. Do do lo do, I'm searching. Too long. 